My journey as a Superman fan started with a tattered red cape blowing in the wind. That ending rocketed me forward like a red-blue blur. Through a decade-long origin story and poignant tales of self-discovery and fatherhood, and backwards to the character's very beginnings. Now, on this podcast, we journey together across time and media to examine the stories that have defined the Man of Steel for over 80 years. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. This is the Donnerverse Part 2. In this episode, we look at the work and influence of Richard Donner in comics. And this episode is actually a double feature. First up, I speak with 13th Dimension Editor-in-Chief Dan Greenfield about the six-issue miniseries Superman 78, written by Robert Venditti and drawn by Wilfredo Torres. This miniseries was set within the universe and continuity of the Christopher Reeve films. Then, in the second half of the episode, I am joined by Scott Honig to discuss a pair of action comics storylines. We have Last Son, co-written by Richard Donner and Jeff Johns, and Brainiac, written by Jeff Johns. Without further ado, here is the first half of our double feature with Dan Greenfield. Dan, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Anthony. Nice to be here. Awesome. So I have first, I suppose, a little bit of a confession and then also some gratitude to express to you with respect to Superman 78. When this project was first announced, here's the confession, I wasn't all that excited And I think the reasons are twofold. On the one hand, as I talked about last week, I have a tremendous amount of affection and appreciation for Superman the movie, but it doesn't occupy the same space in my Superman fandom that it does for you, for example. And on top of that, and this one is a little harder to explain, I've always had somewhat of a bias, I suppose, against comic book adaptations or continuations of film and TV projects. Why? I can't really explain why. The the best example I can give is Smallville season uh, season 11. You and the audience know how much I love the Smallville TV show. I've never read the comic. I know. I will. I why, will. why why haven't you even tried it? <laughs> I I mean I flipped through it a little bit here and there. I think the the thing that I've always come back to is I just feel like the show's the show or the movie's the movie and right. I, I, like I said it's 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 not it's not really something that I can justify or even articulate. It's just been this sort of gut aversion to some of these things. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, and of course, I recognize the fact that these film and TV projects we're talking about are themselves adaptations of the comics. So you would think right. the fact that we're going back to the comic side, I would be on board with. I really can't explain it, but yeah, it's 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 comics it's comics imitating movies, imitating comics, or TV shows imitating comics. Yeah, I, I can sort of get it because I think that that when when we've seen this sort of thing, it's been a mixed bag. Um, I, I go back to the. I mean, the one that really had me excited over the years was the Batman 66 run that DC Comics did. Um, you know, now it's, it's been gone for a few years now. But that had a nice, healthy run, 30 regular issues plus a bunch of uh, uh, um, uh, miniseries that uh, were crossovers with, mostly crossovers with other uh, properties like they did Batman and uh, you know the, the British Avengers. They did Batman the Man from Uncle. They did Batman and you know Batman and Wonder Woman seventy seven. And they, and I and I think that it was always a and I know this is a Superman show, so I won't take too long on this point. I think that it really often depends on dialogue, 
and pacing and how well that the creators really understand the subject matter, not just a matter of the ability to imitate it, but understand it at a level where they could tell the story that it feels like it happens in that world. So I understand your concern about that because they are different art forms. They are different concepts. And you alternately want what you saw on the screen, and yet you want something different at the same time, but not so different that it doesn't feel like it's part of that universe. Does that make sense? The next time someone asks me why I have this aversion, I'm just going to play that clip of what you just said. <laughs> that sums it up perfectly. And you know, yeah. so I'm jumping ahead and we'll circle back and we'll unpack all of this. But the reason why I ended up really enjoying Superman 78 was because it, it to your point, and you know, we, you and I have not compared notes yet, but to your point, I mean, I really felt like this did get the subject matter and was able to capture the tone and the voice and the style to such an extent that I really felt like I was back in that Richard Donner, Christopher Reeve universe. Yes. And so I enjoyed it, but I, from the little dabbling I've done in, in other adaptations and not to paint with a, a broad brush there, but I've not, I don't know that I've encountered that so much elsewhere. So I, like I said, I was very pleasant in the end, I was ple very pleasantly surprised with Superman 78, which we'll get into. But after my confession, the bit of gratitude that I want to express to you is that while I was somewhat lukewarm on the announcement of Superman 78, your articles, articles. <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, yeah. I, I was very excited about this one on 13th dimension. I'm not, and I'm not blowing smoke. Your excitement got me excited about this in a way that uh -huh. I really wasn't before. So I want to thank you because you're, the, and you and I have spoken about Superman the movie. I know how much it means to you. I know the love you have. And that just, yeah. your enthusiasm for this project just really came through in those articles. So can you take me to that moment where you got the confirmation that this project was happening? Like, what's going through <laughs> your head when you, when you finally get that news? Um, well, I can't give away yet. First off, I'm flattered. Thank you very much. That's a, that's a, that's a very nice thing to say. You know, I, when I, when I, you know, when I write about things at 13th Dimension, I, I just uh, I, I tend to let my freak flag fly. So uh, if that affects someone else uh, in the way, you know, in, in a good way, I'm glad that it does. So thank you. Um, I, you know, I, I, you know, without getting, you know, into the nitty gritty of it, when I got wind of what the project, that the project was coming as well as Batman 89, this was, you know, this was, you know, record scratch, you know, you know, like that kind of thing. Like, what are you kidding me? This is, this is actually going to happen. And I never really expected that either would happen. I'd hoped, but I'd never, I'd never really expected it. And with Superman specifically, my reaction wasn't just that it was so glad to have that adaptation coming, but I, I, and I wrote a piece about this, if you'll excuse me. <coughs> Sorry about that. All good. That was when it came to Superman, the issue that I've had with Superman comics per se, unlike Batman comics, is that I've only really wanted to read Superman comics that take place in that Donner universe. Uh, I, I, I love Superman as a comic and a con as a comic and a concept and different versions of him. But Superman comics have uh, traditionally been hot and cold for me, as we've discussed in other in other podcasts. And my favorite version being John Burns, uh, because I actually think that it was closest to a continuation of of the of the Donner movies. There was a lot of similarity there in terms of approach. Not, not all the details, obviously, but there was a lot there. So I, I've always wanted a comic that took place in this world. And so when I found out about it, 
um, I was in a, a good position to be able to do a lot of material, uh, a lot of it in advance, thankfully. And uh, I, I, I was, it, it was one of the most exciting things that I wrote all of last year because I, I was really, really um, pleased that something like this was finally going to happen. Um, the, the, so when I found out, you know, I was very excited. Then it, then it just came, you know, all of the ideas came fast and furious, you know, 13 things I'd like to see happen in this series. What are the, who, who are the likenesses going to be? And do, are they going to have Gene Hackman? And are they going to have Margot Kidder? And I didn't really expect Marlon Brando because I didn't expect that the story was going to lean so heavily on, uh, on Krypton, which in fact was something I wrote about in, in one of my columns, you know, 13 things we'd like to see. As I actually wanted more Metropolis than 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 uh, Krypton. Here, I think we got a little bit more on the Krypton stuff, which has always been less interesting to me. Um, but nevertheless, I was I was really fired up for this. And when I found out that it was Robert Venditti and Wilfredo Torres, and and Wilfredo Torres' uh, Superman artwork, I think is really terrific. He's got a very very specific style. It's not photorealistic. It's very cartoony, which actually fits. The characters look like they do, but they also have a certain larger-than-life quality. Um, I mean, I would love to have seen Gary Frank do it. Let's put it that way. That would have been that would have been the ideal. But I also like the fact that Torres has such a different style that it that there's a little bit more. Um, it's a little bit more fluid, and it has a little bit more of an escapist sensibility by doing it that way so i think the editors of dc made a good choice on the creative team yes i echo that completely and i feel like this is a great example of a writer and artist working together in harmony because especially when yes. you're talking about an adaptation slash continuation if you have the voice but not the look or vice versa it just falls apart. And here you had both. And as you're reading those pages, you, you're hearing the voices of the characters. Yeah. And of course, the visuals are allowing you to to get into that world in that way. So yeah, I think they were a perfect choice. It's really funny, though. And I know you wrote that in one of your articles about how, you know, the, the, the Donna Reeves Superman, like that's the Superman you've always wanted to read. Right. The only Superman yeah. you've wanted to read in the comics. Yeah. Well, I mean, when when Superman came out, um, and I've, I think I've said this in other other podcasts, so I'll just keep it very brief. But when Superman came out uh, at the end of 1978, I wasn't really that much of a Superman fan. I mean, I, I liked him in the sense that I liked him because he was a DC character and he was in the Justice League, and I was familiar with him from television and and uh, had a few of his comics and certainly World's Finest because you know I'm a Batman guy uh, first and foremost. But I never really read much regular Superman. And I remember being so excited about the movie that really changed my outlook completely on, on the character of Superman and, and, and how exciting and interesting he could be. But then after that, I went and tried the comic books that were out at the time and they just didn't do it for me. They just didn't, it just didn't excite. And it's nothing wrong with them. I mean, there are people who absolutely adore the bronze age Superman. It's just not something that ever really has appealed to me. So, you know, putting that in, you know, keeping that in, in context, that's also part of the reason I have always wanted this kind of comic book is because I, this is the comic book I was looking to read in 1978 or, or January of 1979, you know, that sort of thing, right after the movie came out and I was running to the store to see what Superman I could get. This is what I wanted. 
And I think that this project came pretty close, pretty close to, to what I would want to see in a book like this. I think there were, there, there were some off notes. There were some things that I would change, uh, not to be overly critical, but I can't help but take a, a special extra look at this project just because of my own love of Superman 78. Oh, sure. Totally understandable. And I, so I want to get into all of that. But let me just say, so I feel like you and I came at this project from different perspectives because, and I'll be talking about the Richard Donner Action Comics run in the second half of this episode here. Which was but, great, by the way. So I've come around on it more now, reading it in a vacuum. But initially, and in the years since it came out, what kind of frustrated me about it was that injection of the Donner Reeve Superman into the comics at that time when I didn't feel like it really lined up with the version of Superman we had in the comics. However, something like this, I am actually totally on board with. See, for me, this makes sense. It's like, okay, this is the Donner Reeve Superman in comic book form, and it's its own project set within that universe. So that makes total sense to me. I get, I can totally get on board with that. It's the insertion of some of those elements in into the, the the quote unquote regular comics that at the time, like I said, I've come around a bit on it now, but at the time put me off a little bit. Oh, see, I was exactly the opposite. Yeah. I was all in. I was like, this is the <clears throat> other than other than Burn, this was as close as I was at the time, I was like, this is as close as I'm gonna see. You know, Gary Frank was was clearly drawing Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder just enough different to make them different, but also it was very clear what direction they were going. And I mean, actually to back up first, it was, it was uh, Adam Kubert who did the, the first. And then I think, you know, there was some Gary Frank after that, although he, Gary Frank might not have come on until after Donner had left. I'm that not is sure. Uh, I'm sure. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, but nevertheless, all of that, all of that stuff mixed in. Um, I, I really appreciated about Superman. Um, but you're right, it's different than getting an actual Superman 78 comic. Yes. So again, I think we came at this from diff- different perspectives, but ultimately went into this reading of Superman 78 with, with, with excitement and enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. So I want to get your take on, on what we read, what you liked, what you didn't like. And going back to the article, one of your articles, the 13 things we want to see in, in the upcoming comic, <laughs> I was scrolling through this in my prep for this, and I thought, it might, I. I thought it might be fun <laughs> to do a little bit of a report card sort of thing. What did we get? Right. What didn't we get? Sure. So I'll just, you know, uh, I won't read the entire article. And I really, I, I encourage anyone who is interested in more about Superman 78, check out Dan's articles at 13th Dimension. There's a lot of really great stuff there. Thank you. So a good old-fashioned Superman, Lois, Clark, Love Triangle. We didn't, we didn't get that. Mild, because you had Clark kind of puppy-dogging after after Lois, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't, it wasn't like... It wasn't as it wasn't as uh, uh, folk. I mean, Lois actually in this story, I think, is more of a non-factor than she is in the first two movies. I, for the purposes of what we're doing, I'm ignoring three and four because I think that this fits in basically either as Superman 1.5 or Superman 2.5. Um, I'm not entirely clear when this story takes place, and they're they're intentionally vague about it. We just know that it is the metropolis slash New York of the late 70s slash early 80s. So whether the Kryptonian villains have come aboard, there's no mention of them. So I'm not entirely sure if this takes place in between the two movies, which kind of makes sense. Um, but the um, but in any event, um, 
uh, yeah, we didn't really get enough of that aspect of the of of the the of the of the Superman movies. Lois is in it. She kind of we see her reaction to a lot of things, but she's not as much of a factor as I would have wanted. I had the same takeaway. It's so funny though that you mentioned its place in the timeline because as podcast host, I'm mapping out the order of these episodes, and I was saying to myself, okay, where. Where exactly is this one going to fit in? Do I do this one in between Superman the movie and the Donner cut of Superman 2 or after the Donner right. cut? And you know, I was I was searching online and a lot of articles seem to land that like you said that it seems to fit between 1 and 2. There was at least one outlet that said it was after 2 and it was hard to really pin this down. I agree with you though. It de- it definitely seems like it was meant to be ambiguous and you can kind of yeah. you know fit it in because, either place. Because 1 and 2, I mean basically 2 picks up where 1 left off. So how much time is there to have this adventure in between the two movies? At the same time, they, the, the, the Kryptonians taking over. There's, you would think that with another alien ship coming to Metropolis, somebody would have mentioned, you know, here we go again with these aliens coming after Superman. But they, they don't mention that at all. So I, that was clearly a choice that the, that the creators made or, or DC made. But it doesn't matter. It's all, you know, it, it, it's... It's it, it it feels like feels like it's part of that universe, and as I've written a number of times over the last year or so, I've, I've just referred to it as the real Superman three. Yes, well, kind of on that note, the next item on your list was Brainiac, and boy, yes. did you get Brainiac? <laughs> had to be. I mean, everybody had been talking about how Brainiac needed to be the next villain, and it only made sense. And they sort of went down that road in Superman three with with the supercomputer. And there's been talk that the original plan was to have it be Brainiac. So the question was, you know, how were they going to uh, handle Brainiac? How, which version of Brainiac were we going to get? Um, and, and also who would, quote unquote, play Brainiac? And there was a lot of, I got a lot of feedback from readers about, you know, uh, one suggestion that I personally loved and thought it should have been was uh, Leonard Nimoy. I thought it would have made a great Brainiac. But uh, they went with uh, what is essentially Yul Brynner based on his um, Westworld appearance. The idea was that, that, so if you look at, they didn't have his likeness rights, but if you look at the Brainiac drawn by Torres, uh, it is, it, you can see the similarities to Yul Brynner. Gotcha. What did you think in terms of the characterization and motivation? What did you think about this take on Brainiac? Because I thought that the idea that he's trying to save civilizations from extinction by removing contaminations was was a nice angle. I mean, how did how did this Brainiac land for you? I mean, that's similar that I've seen other Brainiacs, so it didn't it didn't strike me as groundbreaking. I mean, the motivation for saving the cities is might be slightly different than other other ver- <clears throat> other versions of the character, excuse me. <clears throat> you know, about whether he did it just because he wanted to have all the knowledge in the universe or he's doing it because he's trying to save this to to you know, for ostensibly um, uh, for se- for ostensibly good reasons, but obviously a really, really, really bad way of going about it. So they try to give Brainiac a little bit more nuance than you often see. But what I did appreciate was the fact that they just kind of mixed the different Brainiac concepts together. They have Kolu in there, and yet they also have the Skull Ship, and they've got the Skull Drones, and they do so. You, you and, and it fits that period because. See, you could see a Superman movie with the skull versions of 
uh, 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 Brainiac, which is my favorite design. I actually prefer that design to the purple and, and, and pink and green. I mean, it's fine, the, you know, but I, I always liked that really. I always thought it was one of the bad, most badass ways of redesigning a character. It was such a radical change, and I remember when it happened that I was like, Brainiac always seemed a little silly to me, but here I was like, oh, man, is he malevolent. And so, so you know, they kind of took a page out of out of uh, um, out of uh, Jeff John's book uh, by making it sort of like you can have both. You know, he's he's kind of you know, the, the brain, and and it worked here. I thought it worked on every level. I thought having him be more humanoid in appearance, um, but himself being, of course, an android, and then having the skull ship and then the skull drones. I think all things considered, it was a it was a really good choice and a really good way of doing. It. Agreed. I think we did get the best of both worlds with this depiction of Brainiac. And yes, he was definitely the right choice of villain. It was different than what we've seen in the Donnerverse so far. And like you said, a bit of redemption for the almost Brainiac that we got in Superman 3. And I know Donner had talked right. about having, you know, expressing an interest in using Brainiac yeah. in a future movie. So for, for all of those reasons, it definitely felt like this was this was the right choice for, right. for Brainiac. Uh, speaking of the conflict with Superman... And, you know, I wasn't initially intending this, but I think your article is actually a great way to sort of frame our conversation here as we're going yeah, through it. This perfect. is funny because I read it just before we got on on this. Just, I don't know, I had a sixth sense that it might be a good way of going through it. So you and I, Mark's on the same same wavelength. Yeah, yeah. So, but what I loved with, with Brainiac was, you know, what, what it ultimately shows us about Superman. The fact that Superman yeah. initially is willing to make that sacrifice, to go with yeah. Brainiac to prevent Metropolis from being taken and willingly allows himself to be shrunk and sent to Kandor, which we'll get to. But I love jumping to the end of the story where once Brainiac, you know, does eventually turn his sights, set his sights on Metropolis, uh, Superman can sit back no longer. And when he emerges from the bottle city, he says to Brainiac, it's like, you made one fatal mistake. You didn't give me a choice. Right. Right. Because it's like, if you're going after Metropolis, I, I cannot sit by. So I like that. I thought right. that was a, a nice payoff yeah. to all of that. So the next item on your list, super feats. So I know you were looking for something akin to the first night from Superman the movie when he's flying through the city and he's saving the cat from the tree and stopping robberies and things like that, right? Yeah, we didn't. We, we got a little bit of that, little nods to that. There's a guy walking his dog, for example, in one scene, and it's just him doing it. But then it's 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 not Superman doing super feats. It's it's as it's as Metropolis is being lifted into the sky and. And there, there are those little human touches, which, by the way, this would probably be a good time to mention all of the cameo appearances that there are in the in the uh, um, in the comic. There, that you know, they clearly were were trying to you know push the envelope because you see Shaggy from Scooby Doo is in there in one of the crowd scenes, and um, the Goonies are in one of the crowd scenes and Richard Pryor is in one of the crowd scenes. And I'm sure there are others that I didn't recognize, but the, the idea of the super feats and him flying all over Metropolis doing cool stuff was kind of muted because it was mostly really about him battling the, the drones, trying to save Metropolis in and of itself and a good health, you know, good portion. He's in Candor where he's not doing super stuff at all. So we don't quite get that flavor that I was looking for, but there's enough of it there. And there's and and and, and Torres does a good job of of putting Metropolis in that sort of um, 
you know, that, that sort of uh, uh, parallel world version of New York City in the late 70s. It looks like Times Square. You see the sun, there's like Reuniti on ice, you know, references to old commercials. There's even a scene where it looks like it's the streetscape from Superman 2 where they have the big fight. And the, and the street is cut off because it's, a, it's actually in a studio. It's not on the street anywhere. Um, so there were a couple of things in there that it made it really feel like the metropolis of, of the movies, which I like. But we didn't quite get him doing all of the, all of the various types of uh, uh, super feats, in part because he really was, you know, I mean, Luther plays a good part of this, but it's really just Superman versus Brainiac in various iterations. It's not Superman just on patrol or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, to your point, we really jump right into it, and there's yes. not a ton of room for no. you know for for some of those side moments. It's really you know right. once we get going, we're we're off. Speaking of Metropolis, it's it's interesting. There's the scene where the citizens of Metropolis are trying to defend Superman against right. Brainiac, and it's just it's a lovely throwback. You know, you and I have different opinions on the current crop of Superman movies. I appreciate the more realistic take at how people would receive the character but it was a lovely throwback and perfectly fitting to go back to that donner world where the the world has embraced him and the fact that the yeah. the people of metropolis are literally fighting for him that uh, was yeah. was great it, it was which, perfectly which, fitting. which we saw superman too remember when yeah. you know at the where uh um you know you uh, it's in metropolis at the battle of metropolis and and uh people want to you know take on Zod and, and Ursa and all of that, and obviously it doesn't go well. And it's part of the reason Superman actually, in, in, in the, the thematically it's similar. At the end of that battle in Superman 2, Superman takes off. Um, he's called a coward, but really it's because he's trying to protect the people below him, realizing that he has to take the fight somewhere else, which is ultimately the Fortress of Solitude. Here, he, in a sense, does the same thing. He's willing to sacrifice himself for the good of the city, and you know that he doesn't know how he's going to get out of it. It's not like a Batman thing where if Batman surrenders, you know he's going to have a plan already. With Superman, he's doing it, but then you got to figure out, okay, how is he going to return? How is he going to come back? And what, what, where is that part of the story going to go? And that's when it goes into a different area that I had anticipated uh, because I did not expect to see Candor. I did not expect to see so much paid to superman's life of what basically what would superman's life be if he had survived with his parents and yet they also in, they put in sharp relief the difference between if he had been raised as a kryptonian versus being raised on earth which i thought was well handled here yes so i'm going to skip ahead a couple of items on your list and then i'll go back because okay. one of them is on your wish list to focus on metropolis downplaying krypton so yeah, that didn't happen that that didn't happen yeah. here the, I, I was very mixed on, I was okay with Candor. I was a bit, I was very, very much uh, more mixed on Jor-El and Lara being alive yeah. in Candor. And what's really yeah. funny, just the timing of, of the various coverage that I'm doing, because I recently covered the Dan Jurgens run on Action Comics during the Rebirth era and the storyline, right. the Oz effect with the revelation that Mr. Oz right. was Jor-El. And I went on this whole rant in that episode about how <laughs> I don't like this idea of Jor-El surviving. I, I didn't either. I feel like there's and something- And I love Dan Jurgens. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, I just didn't like the idea. I just was like, no, no, this doesn't, this doesn't. There are certain characters that should, and it's the same way that I don't like Flashpoint Batman running around all over the place. The idea that this sort of alt, it's alternate version, but it's still the idea that Thomas Wayne 
it should be dead. And I, I, I think that there are certain characters in comics that they should never mess with. If you're talking about a different reality, that's different. Of course, I think like uh, Spider-Gwen is a good example of where it's worked really well. Um, but when you're talking about the main line, or even in even when you're telling a story like this, the certain basics should remain the same, and that is his parents are dead from Krypton, that he was raised on Earth, and that is part of what makes him who he is, is that he's got this Kryptonian heritage, but he is essentially of a, per, a, a man of Earth, a Superman, but a man of Earth. And I think that the the they deal with that quite a bit in here. They show that kind of contrast, but the um, you know him him being this this the the amount of time that they shoot. I lost my train of thought. Um, no, 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 no worries. We can we can we can keep yeah. rolling because I, I think I, I get where you're going with that. And let me let me I'll carry on, and then if you want to circle yeah. back as as it comes sure. to you, but. Yeah, the the whole this this whole central tension, right? That now this world that he thought was lost to him, a piece of it has right. survived, and he can have a life there. And right. being torn between these two worlds, I think that that inherent tension works, and it and it plays. And I, in and of itself, I don't have an issue with that. It it really for me, it was the Jor El and Lara of it all. Yeah, I, I, I he Superman is it's it's too much a part. Uh, it's like Martha Wayne and, and Bruce and Thomas Wayne, Jor El and Lara, Uncle Ben. The Green Goblin, Norman Osborn. There are certain people who should just remain dead. Gwen Stacy in the mainline universe. There, there really should be certain things that are permanent because it's those, it's the permanent aspects of that. Like a lot of people said, no, Barry Allen never should have come back as the Flash. I'm like, you know, I, I was perfectly, I was actually quite happy that he came back. I know that it's really screwed up Wally West, but I really did like Barry Allen's return, and that's just, you know, probably a product of my age and. And you know, the, you know, I'm a Bronze Age guy, Silver Age guy, and all that. But yeah, I I, I was slightly disappointed that not just that Jor El and Lara had been saved in the Bottle City of Candor, but that they had such a they had a large role to play in a good part of this story. Uh, and and it, I found it more distracting than enlightening. Yes, you're giving a little bit of a glimpse of what would what would a grown up Clark or Kal El uh, be like on Krypton, you know, the reluctant prince, that sort of thing. But I don't think it. I don't think that it gave me anyway as a reader the same. Um, it, it didn't. I didn't get the payoff as as much as I would have if the story had been more focused on Earth and Metropolis. Just because while I find Krypton interesting, I've never found it as interesting as Superman being on Earth. Agreed. And so along those lines, yes, if, if we had had a different story entirely and we weren't even on Kandor, I think I would have been perfectly content. If we right. are if we are going to Kandor, I like we've been saying, I, I, I don't like this idea that Jor-El and Lara survive for the reason that we've already discussed. And also... Kal-El has the Jor-El AI. And if we're going by the theatrical cut of Superman 2, he also has the Lara AI. So there's a way of communication. I felt like we don't need them physically present. And, and there was always something wistful and kind of weird and a little creepy too about the AI, uh, no matter how it's used, whether it's in the first two movies or in the Donner cut. Um, the way it's, I, I find it almost bittersweet that he can interact with his parents, but his parents are not there. So there's something 
almost mournful about his relationship with his father and his mother in those movies because it's ethereal. Once it becomes literal, I think it loses the impact. Like I, 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 I Supergirl's great, and 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 so many, you know, the the, the fans of criminals are great. Um, but I do. There's a part of me that does love the idea of the last son of Krypton, the last or the last survivor of Krypton. I could, I could, I could bend my my uh, my sense of disbelief that the, that somehow his cousin survived too, and his dog. <laughs> you know? But 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 the idea that his parents made it through. Yeah, I it's it's I understand why they would go down that road, and I understand the appeal of it. You you would have in your mind sort of the the Christopher Reeve Marlon Brando scenes you never got because they they they, they didn't really shoot much together. Um, so there is some of that, but I, on the whole, that was an area that I I I, I didn't quite as enjoy as much as other parts of the story. I go back and forth a bit on him being the last son. That's certainly the iteration I grew up with, right? Uh, but I, I can I can get on board with the Phantom Zone criminals. I can get on board with Supergirl. And actually, on that note, I thought that it would have worked well and maybe even better for us, based on what we're saying, if in the Bottle City he met Kara and Zor-El and Alora. So there's that family connection. So you still have that pull and they're the ones who are introducing him to the Kryptonian society, but we don't go quite so far as his parents. Yeah. Well, that's sort of, that's sort of played out in, um, in, uh, uh, new Krypton, which followed the, which followed the, the, the right. John's run and the Donner run that you're, that you're talking about. But, but the, and that actually, I have to say, was another reason why the whole Candor aspect of this felt a little repetitive to me because I felt a lot of that ground was gone over. It feels recently to me, but then I realized it's been more than 10, 12 years, 13 years since they did it. So it's really not that new. But I didn't thought, I didn't think that it broke all that much new ground. Um, but yeah, I, I, I personally, I have no problem with. I mean, I, the Phantom Zone villains are the ones that fit the most. The idea that they were in this other dimension of this this imprisonment and then are released from that, I think that works much better than any of these other options that we've seen so far. Yes. I will say a couple of things amused me uh, dealing with, with Kal-El and his parents in the Bottle City. One was, I felt like Jor-El was, was shading him a little bit. There are numerous instances where Jor-El is basically like, listen, I haven't figured out how to get out of here. There's no way you will, kid. <laughs> right. Well... It doesn't really. That's the other thing is that 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 at least. And I reread this just before we we did this call. Um, I I don't think they really explained Brainiac's motivation in calling Krypton uh, that that Krypton needed to be eradicated or it needed to be preserved or it, it was sort of like a, a, a like like it was in, that that Kryptonians were an infestation and that Kryptonians should not exist and yet he preserved them and that they're dangerous and they're dangerous to have on earth so he's supposed to have this sort of um, more uh, uh, beneficent uh, um, uh, motivation even if obviously his his actions are are, are deplorable so yeah there's a there's a there, there's something there that I think um, kind of was an off note about that um but the I, and, and again i'm trying to count i'm trying to balance that against taking the story on its own terms versus 
what I would want to see, which is a trap that you fall into when you get into a project like this. Is like you like I, I have a I had a checklist of things I wanted to see, and when you see things that are a little differently, you're like, oh, okay, that would have been nice to see that, but I'll take this because it's still you know Superman seventy eight. That's one of the things that's been most interesting for me doing this podcast is going back to things and recognizing that I, especially in cases where maybe I didn't enjoy something the first time, a lot of the, a lot of the times now going back to it, I can appreciate, okay, I went in initially with certain expectations and that colored my entire experience and now I can take a step back. And there are a lot of things that I'm finding I'm enjoying more. The final episode of this Donnerverse event is going to be a look at Superman Returns. And I actually have a different pretty, I would say a good bit more favorable impression of that now, certainly than I did in 2006 when I sat down to watch that in the theater for the first time. So, you know, there's, there's definitely always, always those, uh, forces at play, but the the only thing I would say to that though, is that the big finale in this book is right out of Superman Returns. Yes. And that was, that I, that was a little bit of a letdown. I was like, we've kind of seen this before with him, you know, you know, uh, saving in that case a continent, but here saving the planet, uh, the, the the city of Metropolis. I thought that that was a little played out, and I don't mean to be. I mean, I think listening to the first ten or fifteen minutes of this, it would sound like a more critical of the story that I that I uh, than I really am. I enjoyed the story quite a bit, but if we're going to start rooting around the, you know, going under the hood, there are going to be things that I'm going to note that are are that I thought were were. Uh, slight missteps at the very least, because I actually have quite a bit that I have to say that actually recommends this story and why I think the story is, is, is a, like I said, a worthy successor to the Donner movies. Oh yeah, for sure. And I, I think the audience generally does appreciate the, uh, you know, our, our candor as we're candor, like the yeah. bottle city <laughs> candor, as, you know, as, as we're going through all of this. And I think yeah. the fact too, we're start, our starting point here is this article about the things you wanted to see and, Right. Most of those right. didn't play out in this, so I, I think it only right. it's only natural. There were several things that did, but you, you know, anyway. Yes, and we will give credit where credit's due. One of the ones on your list was ignoring Superman 3, 4, and Superman Returns. And I would sort of give maybe half credit for that. You mentioned him lifting the landmass. That is right out of Superman Returns. Gus Gorman makes right. that cameo, like we said. This right. was from the theatrical cut of 2, so you know maybe we can get away with this. But the cellophane shield is in there. Yes. Yes, which I love that. So you, all right. So I guess the the oh, daughter. No, it's yeah. totally dorky. Yeah. It's, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. It's like it's like Superman having uh, a Chinese, um, you know, the Great Wall of China vision. Yeah, and uh, and and you know, and and also in Superman Two, how the the Kryptonian villains have different powers than Superman. They've got lightning. They've got laser bolts that come out of their fingers and stuff like that. So that's the stuff that, to me, is is I just have to I just have to shrug my shoulders because it's like okay, it looks it looks fun. Like when it happened in the when I remember the first time I saw him do the thing on his chest, I thought to myself, and this was when the movie came out, so I was fourteen years old, and I remember what. Superman can't do that. What? Batman's the one who's got like a utility belt and stuff like that. And I'm like, this is, you know, and the same thing where he can like make himself appear in three places at once and all these weird powers that they gave him. But when he, they, 
you know, in, in the context, the fact that they, they did it in, in this story, I thought it was great. I was like, that's just a fun tip of the hat to one of the dorkiest aspects of the movies. And uh, I think it was Wilfredo Torres on Twitter after the comic had come out, he, he posted the panel and he says, yeah, we went there. So, I mean, they knew that they were, they were doing it as a gag. They knew that it was something that it was just for, and when I saw it, I kicked myself for not having put it on my list. I was like, damn, that was a smart thing to do. That was fun. <laughs> and now I hear you. Well, and so when you were talking about lifting the landmass, you know, right out of Superman Returns, I guess on the one hand, you could look at it, like you said that it's like, yeah, I felt like, you know, we kind of been there, done that. But on the other hand, I guess in in defense of the creative team, maybe the idea was that, yes, we are telling a new story, right? We're not merely adapting the prior movies, but it is a little bit of a remix of all of the things. So there are these nods to to all of them, some big, some small, right? Superman 3, we got the Gus Gorman cameo. I think that's about it. And that's probably all right. all we need. <laughs> but yeah, it is. But so maybe maybe that is a little and bit. And keep in it. mind, he could be in the crowd before Superman 3, the movie. Right. You know, he was he was living in Metropolis. So, I mean, this could be at any time that you just happen to see him in a crowd scene. Going back, the other thing that made me laugh uh, when when Kal-El is in the bottle city, I'm going to be a little a little facetious here for a second. So bear with me. But it felt there was a moment that felt so in keeping with this version of the character, particularly what we see in Superman, Two, because in Superman, Two, Clark is adamant that he wants to live as a human. He wants to be with Lois. He he wants to relinquish these powers and live as a man. He has made his decision. Next scene, he gets beat up at the diner, instantly regrets his decision. Got to go back. Got to go back. <laughs> He's got to walk all the way back to the North Pole. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't know where that, uh, you know, where that, uh, where the diner is, if it's in the Yukon territory, if it's in, I mean, I have no, Alaska somewhere. I have no idea. But I like. I always thought it was interesting that without any powers, he had to walk all the way back to the, uh, the Fortress of Solitude, which is absolutely ridiculous. Yes. So there's that. And like I said, just this this instant regret. It's like, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. So similarly here, you know, he gets to the Bottle City and he's he seems at peace with his decision. His parents are there, and we have this sequence of the the other citizens coming up to him, sort of questioning his credentials, asking him questions that maybe he's not quite sure how to answer about the the, the politics right. of the city. He doesn't know how to use the glasses. And that's it. The gla- he spills a little bit uh, of the of yeah. the drink on himself. He doesn't know how to use the glasses. And I feel like it was a very similar thing, similar calculus that was going through his head as in Superman 2, where he was like, oh, I made a big mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, here it wasn't, you know, he, it wasn't so much the mistake of... of surrendering is that he never expected to right. see candor i think it was just it made it, it it put into his mind that i just don't belong here now this is just not my world this is where i'm from but it's not my world in the same way of course it's this is you know let's not go too far my family's from eastern europe but I don't at all identify. I mean, I identify with 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 parts of the culture. My family's Jewish. You know, there's a, a lot of that. Obviously, I do identify with and that are part of who I am. But I'm an American. You know, I'm a New Yorker, and that's how I see myself. That's how I I recognize that there's a part of me that comes from elsewhere. That there's a lineage. That there are that there are traditions. But I'm a New Yorker living in the 21st century. And I think that that you see with Superman in both cases, in, in this case, you see that here, as opposed to him having made the choice to give up his powers that instantly regrets it here. It just makes the point that he really doesn't fit in that way. He could, and he could make a go of it clearly, but it's not right. It's not 
it's not where he belongs and you know he's he's needed to protect his real home at least he knows his other home is is you know in the end it's ultimately safe but he really need, felt a he felt compelled to to return to metropolis because that's what where he was needed yes no well said and on a serious note i do i do agree with that and um a couple of my favorite moments in the book and I thought these played beautifully were when Kal-El is telling his parents about Jonathan and Martha, yeah. about how they, these people found him and raised him and loved him. And anytime we have instances and of that. And he refers to him as his parents. Yeah. He just says it, which would, which is a very, that's a very subtle piece of writing by Venditti where, where he, 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 he just blurts it out because those are his parents. Yet he also recognized that this is his mother and father, but he just immediately re refers to them as his parents because they are his parents. These are the people who he knew his entire, you know, well, all, all until adulthood or near adulthood. Certainly, is you know, his mother after that because we know that she's still alive. Um, whether she is at the point this story is being right. told, not it's left vague, um, and I think that was also intentional that they left it vague. Um, because how much fun would it be Martha Kent to meet, you know, Jor-El and Laura? That would actually be a really kind of a cool story. That would be. Yeah. Wouldn't it? Just just even just a short eight eight pager, like in Superman Red and Blue or something like that. If 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 Martha Kent met Jor, you know, maybe they maybe that story's been told. I don't know. I, I can't imagine that it hasn't been. But um I, I did appreciate the fact that when when Superman just thinks of his parents, he thinks of the Kents. And I and I think that that's appropriate. Yes, for sure. And later on in the story, when they're deciding whether or not to try to send Kal-El back out, outside of the bottle, uh, yeah. and, and he says to them that, you know, my father taught me that, you know, we're, you know there's a reason for everything, and yeah. I, all I've ever needed is a chance. And so you see this heroism that was imbued in him by the people who brought him up. It was, it was great. I, that I really, I really did enjoy. But I also like that he, that his, I was here for a reason. And the reason, of course, is that Jor-El sent him there. That was number one. But also that that was part of the inherent conflict between, in the first movie, in Superman's mind between, am I Kryptonian or am I of Earth? Right. Where the, the, the key scene, the climactic scene where Lois has died and Superman is flying into the clouds. Like, what am I going to do? And his, he listens to his father who tells him, you're not supposed to do this. And then he listens to his earth father who says, you know, you're here for a reason. And Superman takes that as, as tacit approval to do the right thing, even if there might be ramifications. Actually, one of the great failings of the Superman movie um, franchise is that they never address the question, which I always thought they would, of the fact that he did screw with time. They, you know, they, they, he said, it is forbidden to interfere with human history. He does it anyway. And, you know, okay, that, nothing ever comes of that. I would have liked to have seen that be addressed in this story as well. But I also know that there are, you know, there's only so much you can do. Listen, if this were Smallville, Superman would have been zapped right back to that fortress, depowered, right. stripped of his costume, forced to walk home. That would have been yeah. a whole thing. Right. <laughs> but yes, I, I agree. We actually talked about that in the last episode when we discussed Superman, the movie. It's like, ah, there yeah. no, no repercussions to this. So uh, yeah, right. I missed, yeah. missed opportunity. Anyway, going back to your list about the comic. So, oh, this, I mean, a couple, couple quick ones. Lex's classic jumpsuit 
it's it's brief, but we do get it. We do see him in the yeah. Purple. We get it. We get it. We get it at the end. It's a, it's it's not quite the jumpsuit, but it's a version of it, and clearly a sop to to the to the Bronze Age. Because I even remember at the time, a lot of people, you know, so much time has passed that that there are plenty of people like me who think of uh, Gene Hackman as the ultimate Lex Luthor. You know, the the businessman, the 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 you know the, the whether it's real estate or what have you, the combination of mad scientist and businessman. And there's even a reference to uh, the uh, property values in Metropolis by that Lex mentions, which is kind of funny. Um, but the, the you do get to see not only his penchant for hot air balloons, which we also saw in Superman 2, but we do get to see him in the purple and green. And, and, and that made me happy. I was like, oh, here we go. We get a, get a little bit of mixture of both. Yeah, we had that. And I also, it's interesting because Lex is out on parole when the story starts. And Superman goes to him and asks for his help with Brainiac. And is really giving him a chance here to, to help and to redeem himself. I was of two minds on this, and I want to get your take. Because on the one hand, I really do like this idea of Superman's humanity, his compassion, his willingness to give another chance, to offer that hand, to offer a chance at redemption. I really do like that. At the same time, I'm like, ah, is this guy really deserving of it? <laughs> he tried to, he tried to wipe he out tried the West to, Coast. He tried to murder millions of people. I mean, he's he's not, he, you know, it's just so he's so damn charming that we all love him anyway. But he was he's he wanted to kill and said, you know, the, the great lights. This is how you get your kicks, Luther, by planning the deaths of millions of people. He says no, by by causing the deaths. of millions of people i mean you know lex luther should have been in supermax never to see light you know the, the light of day again uh aside from the fact that he also even briefly allied himself with the kryptonian criminals so you could certainly say that he was a seditionist too um but you know it's 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 superman and, and of course superman the idea you want to have those moments between superman and luther where the, the, those moments of conversation, the battle of wits between the two of them. It is weird that Superman would go to Lex with this incredible technology and trust him. But he also recognizes that if anybody's going to find a way to do it, at least of what we've established so far in this universe, is that Lex is probably the one to figure it out. And so Superman is forced to trust someone he cannot trust but let's also trust, but verify, because this isn't going to be keeping keeping an eye on you. Um, but even to that point, I really liked Lex Luthor's reintroduction to the story about the scene with him and, and the parole officer uh, is an absolute scream about how you know working at Cord Industries a little little Easter egg there for the rest of the DC universe. But he says, "How are you a cafeteria work?" And he and the three the three consecutive panels of just him just stewing before he finally makes his, you know, before he finally leaves was, I thought one of the, one of the best parts of the entire series, because it really felt like Hackman's, you know, slow burn that he would do when he was frustrated with, with, with whatever situation, whether he was talking to Otis or Miss Tessmacher, or that slow burn he would do. And I thought that, that came out really well. Yes, that was a lot of fun. Oh, and speaking of other Easter eggs, we do see one of the Bottle Cities has Thanagarians in it. So that was a nice Yes, other, other yeah, movie. I like that. Hey, Hawk, and, that, and that was cool too because Vendetti did a great run on Hawkman just yeah. before this too. So that was a that was a little uh, a little sop to the fans there. Yes, yeah, that was really cool. So other items, whatever happened to that chunk of kryptonite from Superman the movie that's around his neck, we don't get a follow-up on that in this. 
I, I, I still don't understand how that's never been addressed. Somebody's got to write that story. What happened to that piece of kryptonite? Maybe, maybe the sequel. Unfortunately, these next yeah. few, they, we, we can knock these out quickly. Metallo, yeah. no go. No. Parasite, no go. No. A good Jimmy and Lois caper. I mean, we touched on this before. They just, they didn't have much to do in this. Uh, I don't know that there was a real estate, no pun intended, for it. <laughs> Jimmy and, and, and uh, Perry act more like the Greek chorus in this story as opposed to having a role to play. That's okay. Um, you know, that's sort of the role that they had in the movies. But you didn't have enough of the the Jimmy Lois uh, repartee and enough of their connection, which was always kind of a charming part of the of the uh, of the first movie, especially and especially the, the California scenes, you know, where where I think he cares about you. What Clark? Of course he does. No, and then you know Jimmy looks up and he's referring to Superman and Lois with that classic response. Yeah, well, if he's lucky someday. You know, he'll be able to date me. That's you know, classic Lois's bravado. You know. Yes. Actually, in the last episode, obviously we talk about the, the California sequence, but I also briefly touched on that three-hour television cut. And I mentioned the one thing from that that I wish had been in the movie, and I thought of you because I know it's a favorite of yours, when Superman saves Jimmy by the dam and he yes. gives him that second to get the shot of it. To get the shot, yeah. yeah. It, that, that, it was such a great piece. I wish they had left it in the, orig- in the original movie. Yeah, not much else from that extended cut that I, I'm longing for, but that was, a, that was definitely a cool moment. Another item, Jimmy mutates at least once. Unfortunately, we didn't, we didn't even get anywhere near that. Yeah, I know. Um, hey, what did you get it? A variant cover by Gary Frank. I actually don't even know the answer. Did he do it? I don't think he did. He didn't. No. I can't believe that he... They, that actually, I will say this, is that uh, I'm very reluctant to to criticize any working artist and writer in, in, in the comics business because everybody's trying to be a professional. Everybody's trying to do their best and everybody's trying to do what they think is right. I, I felt that the... And this is a small point in the grand scheme of things. I wasn't that happy with a lot of the a number of the covers for this series whether it was the main ones or whether they were uh variant covers because they were nice covers but for the most part they just felt like generic superman covers they did not feel like christopher reeve it didn't feel like the 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 likenesses alone in some of the artists were just a little too generic Superman. And I was like, "Mm." you know, with the Batman 89, it's been different. I mean, it is definitely the, the, um, the, for the most part, the, uh, uh, the the covers have definitely felt of that world. Uh, The covers here felt a little bit more generic. So I was a little disappointed in that. And yeah, I I thought that Jerry Ordway should have had a cover. I thought that I actually did a couple of other stories. There's a, there is a great, uh, Jerry Ordway illustration, and it's on the site. You can find it at Thirteenth Dimension. That he did back in the late seventies. It was like just his own painting that he had done. That was a that was a uh, um, an homage to Superman the movie and that whole universe. And I thought when I saw it, um, I thought, man, that 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 should be resurrected as a variant cover. That's a that's a gorgeous illustration. And then there was another one by Drew Struza, the uh, the movie poster artist. Who just weirdly, I happened to po- uh, post a story about uh, the other day on the site um, that he did of Christopher Reeve. Uh, that also, I think, would have made a magnificent uh, uh, variant cover. And I and I that was the one area that I thought DC did very very well with its covers and variant covers for the Batman sixty six series. 
they, they really, you know, Mike Allred just has such a feel for that show and that, that whole um, concept, that whole, cult, the whole swing in sixties culture that those, th- those covers sang. Uh, I did not feel the, the same with, with, with a lot of these. I did like some of them. Others I thought were just fairly generic. Fair enough. I'll, I'll be honest. I didn't have the covers didn't make as much of an impression on me, although maybe that's telling in its own way, but I, I, I do get what you're saying. The last item on your list was the the John Williams soundtrack, specifically including it yeah. in the digital edition. I don't believe they did that, but <laughs> I I but want that was pure wishful. Yeah, that was just that was a wish because I could just turn it on. You know, yeah. I could turn it on uh, Apple Music or Spotify or whatever and read it while I'm watching. And I read, I did read it while I'm listening. I did. Yeah. Did you? Sure. Yeah, it was well, great. Well, actually, what yeah, it is. Actually, what I did when I reread it just before this to read it all at once uh, was I had the movie playing in the background. You know, so it just just to have the, the the atmosphere, which was fitting because in watching you know the first half hour to forty minutes of the movie, so much of it is about Krypton and Superman finding the Fortress of Solitude. So th- there was there's a lot of um, there's a lot there that uh, that certainly parallels what's in the uh, in the book. Yes, yeah. So I mean, I I too listened while I wa- while I read, and it was it was wonderful, but. And I know I said this earlier, but really it's a testament to these creators that even if I didn't have the music on, I still would have heard it in my head. Like, I think they did that good of a job, especially in that first issue where we get that, uh, you know, that, that big page with the two big panels, uh, you know, of him yeah. ripping the shirt open. And it's just, you're, you're right in there. You're right in there. So they really, they really nailed that even if you didn't take the step of playing the music on your own. Yeah, but the, it, it, and that is one of the things that I, that I do feel that Venditti got right. And really, I mean, he's he he clearly loves the material and loves the source material. And without getting into names, you know, there were a number of writers who were working on the Batman '66 series, um, which was an ongoing series as opposed to a mini <clears throat> a mini series, except for the uh, the, the crossover uh, you know, specials. Um, those were to me. Um, Sometimes it was about the art. Sometimes it was about the writing. But there were certain writers and, and, and who imitated the whole Batman '66 shtick, the the, the 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 campiness, the comedy of it, the broadness of it. But it didn't feel like it fit in the show. It, it just, sometimes it would be certain bits of dialogue or the pace of the dialogue, or there were certain things I was like, that doesn't really sound like Adam West to me. Cause when I read comics, I hear voices in my head. I know that makes me sound like I am, you know, that I have, that I might have issues that I have to deal with, but no, I think most people do have a, and for me, it varies on the, the, the era that I'm, that I'm, that I'm reading. And when I was reading Superman 78, and particularly when I was reading Superman's, um, Dialogue. It sounded like Christopher Reeve. They were things Christopher Reeve, Reeve would say. They were things that Margot Kidder would say. They were things that Jackie Cooper would say. Um, we don't know enough about Jor-El and Laura, particularly Laura, to to judge. But it's close enough from what we saw. Uh, Brainiac, of course, was was made from whole cloth in terms of his personality for this book, but it should it more or less followed what we've seen in other versions of, of Brainiac. So I appreciate the fact that I did feel like I was reading these versions of these characters and that's a huge that that's a huge tip of the cape as it were to to robert venditti for for capturing that feel whereas 
it could have all been about the art and it wasn't it was about the combination of the artist and the writer here to make this world come to life definitely yeah you definitely you really feel the affection that they have yes for absolutely. for the material it really comes yeah. through now which is, which is actually when it comes down to it more than you want you can argue you can i mean this is like not to go way off point but like i have very little patience for the vast majority of star wars fans because if the story isn't precisely what they thought it would be in their mind, then they get, you know, you know, they get nuts and hateful and all that jazz. And my feeling is look, look, let the let the creators make the story. So long as it feels like it's in that universe, so long as it feels like you know, if you don't like it, you don't like it. You know, it's not everything is for you. But if you if the context is the same, if the feel of the universe is the same, then Jesus Christ, get all, you know get over it. And that's even with some of the things I've been picky about in this, in this conversation, uh, what I do really enjoy about this series is that it felt like it took place in that universe. And that's really 80% of the job. Yes. And I feel like even things that maybe you or I, or you and I didn't love, it wasn't a matter of it not being executed well. It was just maybe disagreeing with the choice that was made, which is different. It's not like, it's not like, oh man, like really good way of putting it. Cause there were times when I would read the Batman 66 and I'm like, this just doesn't fit. Like this feels like a generic silver age Batman story, or it doesn't really, it doesn't Batman 66 was a very particular type of beast and, and to imitate it, without really feeling it without you know with you you could always tell with venditti and and particularly how this story ends really open-ended there's a lot more that can happen they left themselves open a clear possibility of doing another series i don't know if it's going to go down that way i think that if there were going to be one we would have heard about it by now i think this is this this feels like a one and done i hope i'm wrong about that but they did leave it open-ended enough that you could have um, another series that takes place in this universe, hopefully they'll be able to make it happen. But maybe that's also when we get the mystery of that, uh, the mystery of that missing piece of kryptonite, which I still think would be perfectly, would be a perfect answer would be that it gets found by the person who turns into Metallo. See that, that to me is what I want to have happen. Yeah. But I, di- but I digress as I tend to. Hey, that would certainly work. And so on the notes, I did want to ask you if, if there is a follow-up to this and yeah, like you said, we've not heard anything yet, but hopefully something materializes. I, I, I mean, I would go so far as to say, I mean, I enjoyed this enough that I really would, I would be disappointed if if we never got any more. So hopefully something comes up. Yeah. If we do get that, uh, you know, you don't have to give a whole, you know, we don't need 13, <laughs> you save it for the article. Yeah. But but what, I mean, what would be some of the big, the big things? I mean, the kryptonite certainly is one of them, but like, what else would you really want to see? It's just because I think it's a, I, I just think that it's a thread that, that some writer that's a good thread to pull on you know that there is a piece of kryptonite in the sewers of metropolis which means that there's basically a ticking time bomb under superman's feet and it's never been addressed in any fashion as far as i can tell that i think would, would really be a great way of oh you remember that little dangling plot thread that was never resolved well here we go and I could see a another story where I kind of get what I wanted in my my list that I made, because I, I don't think that Metallo would be big enough a, a villain for a movie, and I don't think the Parasite would be a big enough movie 
big, big enough for the movie, but I think they would make a hell of a tandem for a movie. You know, a lot of times movies are just one villain. A lot of times they're, they're multiple villains, but the concepts of their powers are similar. One is stronger because he has a kryptonite heart and is dangerous to, to, to a Kryptonian, and the other one takes a Kryptonian's powers away. So I think that there, you know, I, I could see some story where, you know, Metallo and, and, and the Parasite, and it's all Metropolis. You know, this is this would be where we would get the Metropolis story I've been talking about, where you see super feeds and a little bit more of the day to day with with Clark and Lois and Jimmy and Perry, and then and then the 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 story takes place strictly in Metropolis, and I and I think that that would be a good way of tying it in. Now, of course, they've left open at the end of this story the fact that and I, and I did not expect this when I read it. They left Candor extant. It's still there, and his parents are still alive. They did not. They did not kill them off. They did not put him into the Phantom Zone. They did not do any number of things they could have. They left them alive, and that to me is interest. It was an interesting choice because it says to me that uh, that Venditti either decided to leave it that way for maybe someone else to pick it up, or he's got an idea that he would go back to that. Maybe having. Uh, Jorel and Lara on Earth might be kind of funny. You, I could see a lot of humor, but that, but it's the kind of humor that probably would have been better if you had actually gotten to see Marlon Brando as Jorel in a movie on in Metropolis. There's a lot of comedy potential there, um, but they don't generally use, um, you know, uh, uh, there wasn't much humor to, to Jorel or Lara. But this would be an opportunity to to have to revisit that fish out of water concept, you know, or and have Superman introduce him to Martha, you know, have him over for Sunday dinner. They don't, you know, or, or I don't know. Yeah, I, I, there's so many things. There's so many ways you could go. A couple of things to pick up from. So as far as yeah, the lack of humor with Darrell and Laura, the only thing I can think of from from Superman the movie and it's the special edition. It's that scene that they added between Superman and Jor-El after the first night. Right. Right. And Jarrell has this whole bit about you can't be on call twenty eight hours a day. <laughs> right, that's the only time that they have a gag, and he, yeah, and, he, and I think he does that twice or something like that. He has to correct him at least, you know. Uh, it, it did make me think that, but I, I, I can see the idea of Superman's parents arriving on Earth, but then getting ex- maybe they're exposed to the parasite and they lose their powers. And, I, I mean, I'm just you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. all off the top, extemporaneous. But the idea that if they're still alive, then I think that it behooves them to find a way. And as we've seen it happen in the Superman uh, comics many times over, where where Kandor is, you know, you know, is revived on Earth, and what are the ramifications of something like that? But it's not just that; it's also what is Superman going to do with all of these other cities that he'd saved? You know, I mean, I don't think that that's. I don't think that's a great Superman 78 story to tell that he goes to all of these planets and returns them. I think that could be done off camera, but since Krypton does not actually exist and he has to find a home for them on earth. Um, I, I think that there, there's some storytelling potential there um, that could be interwoven into another, into another story. I'm glad though, that you mentioned about jor and Lara still being alive at the end of this, because it's so, it's so funny as I was reading this and I, I did not read this as it was coming out. It was pretty much 
towards the end of the release of these six issues that I, I picked them all up and I, I read them at that point, but I had mostly avoided spoilers. So I really didn't know much going in. And like I said, when I saw that Jarrell and Laura were alive, it was instantly brought me back to Mr. Oz. And I was like, Oh no, not this. But as I'm reading, it, I'm like, well, I'm sure by the end of it, they'll have died or have been sent back in time or sent to the phantom zone, something like that. I did not expect. So in that sense, it was, it reversed my expectation. I was not, <laughs> was not expecting that they would still be alive at the end yeah. of it. So it was very interesting. It was a different road that I, that I would have, I mean, that was a pretty bold choice to do in this universe because, first off, if the story ends here, what are the ramifications of that? And the other part of it is if there's another story, how, how is that going to ultimately be resolved? Um, and that's that's uh, that's something that, that I would like to see, but who knows? If this Again, I would have thought that by this time we would have heard, uh, I, and I don't know what the sales were on it, but we... we would have heard, I think, by now that there would be another. But who knows? You know, any anything can happen. Maybe they're waiting for another Superman movie to be made, and they go back to this, or, or who? You know, I, uh, I mean, right now they actually haven't even finished Batman eighty nine. There have been delays, so there's still two issues that are that are waiting out there. Which is actually an interesting conversation to have. Maybe at a different point is that there's there the the, the choices that were made in approaching Superman seventy eight versus Batman eighty nine were very very different. Um, just to, just very quickly, Superman seventy eight definitely feels more like it takes place in that universe. Batman eighty nine, I would say, less so. And part of it is because the story, it's which is a really good and interesting, uh, compelling story, a compelling take on the character, and a compelling take on 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 the uh, um, the origin of Robin. Uh, and it, it still, at the same time, doesn't feel like a Tim Burton universe it feels like something different here at least it feels like it's part of the donner world gotcha. although i will say one thing i know it was cute but for for jor-el to still refer to kal-el as my little kal-el i just don't think he would have done that as an adult i i, I don't i don't i i just it just did that that felt forced just just a, that, that's, that's a tiny thing but I, I don't think that even as an adult even if, even given the context that Jorah would ever refer to his son as little Kal El, as a baby, sure, but as a grown up, I think that he'd be much more stately. I think that's fair, especially since we have the AI in the fortress as an example. And right. Yes, that's that's you know not not the the soul of the man, but nevertheless, he's still no, got a sense. It's, it's, and, and I know the idea was to show how much he loved him and, and that he had a pet name for him, and that it, it it's it's paternal. It just, I would, I could see just the same, like, you know, I, I used to call you my little Kal-El, but now you've, you know, become a man I'm proud of. And I can see, you know, yep. myself getting welled up reading that. I'll say as far as what might be on my wish list, if, if they do another one of these, I could get on board with what you've proposed as far as Metallo and Parasite. I would be cool with that. I believe Wilfredo Torres had posted Bizarro art at some point. Am I correct? Yeah, I think so. I think he has too. I I would love to see Bizarro in this universe if we can forego the Bizarro speak, which I've talked about on the show. I, mean, I don't love it, so if we can deal, if we can do away with that, I would be excited to see Bizarro. I, I you know I've never been a huge Bizarro fan. I think Bizarro is always best when he's used for comic relief. Um, my the thing is is that we have seen him battle people as powerful as him. We saw that in in the Phantom Zone. I would. I, that's why I, I think of Metallo and, and Parasite is while they could be as powerful as Superman, it's their particular power sets or their gimmicks 
that make it a little different. It's not so much about Superman fighting someone as strong as him, it's Superman being cut down to size and him having to deal with that more than just getting his ass kicked in a, in a, uh, a diner in the middle of nowhere. It's like, how does this guy deal with two, two count them two, villains that actually can weaken him to the point where they can murder him? And how would he handle that? And, you know, Lex Luthor gets away at the end of this too. That was the other thing I wanted to mention, just again, to jump off into a different, you know, different uh, thread here, is Lex Luthor gets away and Lex Luthor pretty much is part of the saving of the day. You know, he, he, he does, he does, he, you know, it, it's because he's arrogant and he wants to prove that he can do it, but it does, it does pay off Superman's faith in him that he would step up and, and do what he did. Um, would that be the same Lex Luthor we saw in the movies? Lex Luthor, the movie's a little more craven than this one is. Um, this one, of course, was hysterical with his, I'm the greatest criminal mind, the greatest criminal flame of our age, and, and all those great lines. But it was an interesting arc for, for Luthor because he he basically gets away in the end and you wonder, okay, what's his next game? So, I, I again, that's another area that they could explore. And the fact that there are two quick references to Batman in the story too, which is fun. You know, setting up the potential for what everybody really wants, which is a Batman '89, Superman '78 team up. You know, that's that's what we all want, or a Batman '66, Superman '78 team up. You could go either way, or a Batman '89, <laughs> Superman '78, Wonder Woman '77 team up, which everybody wants to see. It's true. There, yeah, there's certainly a lot of yeah. of potential there. I, I'll say the, the yeah. last thing on on my wish list would be, I think, just more in terms of the the character beats or emotional moments. Some, I would love to see some of the things in this comic that like we didn't get to see in the Donner movies, like Clark visiting his mother in yes. the present. Little things right. like that I think would be really cool. Now, right. the, 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 I guess the final thing about Superman 78 itself that I thought was interesting was with some exception, particularly you know lifting the landmass, I felt like so much of this in terms of uh, you know production and, and technology could have been doable by the Richard Donner team. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially yeah. the fact that so much of it takes place on Krypton. It's like, you go right back onto that set and you're good to go. Yeah. So it was interesting to me. And I actually, see, I appreciated that because I feel like on the one hand, you're, you're not bound by anything anymore in the pages of a comic. You can draw anything. You could have them going through right. all these different dimensions and, and all sorts of stuff, right? Yeah, that unlimited budget. And while I would understand the appeal of doing something like that, I felt like it, it was a smart choice to make it something that felt like it could have been made by Donner at that time. And I feel like for the most part, it could have been. I completely agree. I completely agree. There, there was nothing in this movie, because even though the technology wasn't there at the time, couldn't you see all those, all those uh, uh, Brainiac droids being done by Ray Harryhausen technology? Yep. You know, or something along, or, or a... a an, an advanced version of that in 1978. I, 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 I yes, and and that's also that's what I uh, that's what it appeals to me is that it played for the most part within the rules of that particular universe. And again, to go back to Batman 66, there were issues that really felt like they took place in that universe, but there were others where it was like, I know that they want to play with the fact that they have an unlimited budget, but then it doesn't feel right. There's a, there's a scene in one of the issues where there's a kind of an aerial dog, an aerial dog fight between the Riddler and Batman. 
that I'm like, you know, that wouldn't have been so, the way they presented it would not have been so easy to film on the show. I mean, they could have done it, but it just didn't feel right because it, it didn't feel like it, it, it adhered to the limitations of the show itself. And therefore it took me out of it. Um, with this, I, I never felt that, you know, if, if anytime I took, I, I was taken out of it, it just, because it might've been story choices that I was, you know, like the fact the whole thing about Candor just didn't thrill me, but it's not like it wasn't well done. And it's not like it didn't feel like it was a part of that universe. Yes. Well, it's really funny audience. Dan and I were talking before we started recording about how we didn't have a ton to say about this and we figured we maybe get a half hour and it's been an hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> I know. I know. Sorry. This is what happens. This is what happens. No, I so, I so enjoy this. I thank you so much. Before we sure. wrap, is there anything else that you want to say? Anything else that we didn't get to that you wanted to talk about? I, as soon as I hang up, I'm sure that I will. Um, but I think we've pretty much covered it in, in broad strokes. I do recommend it. Um, the trade is coming out this summer. If you haven't gotten it in issues, you can also get it online. Um, and uh, I, 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 I do plan on picking up the trade of both this and Batman 89, even though I don't do a lot of you know, buying multiple formats anymore. This is a case where this is too special to me um, in, you know, in, as far as just it, it's a wonderful piece of that Superman 78 uh, pie, for you know, lack of a better word. And I think it belongs. You know, it's, it's, is it better than Superman 4? Yes. Is it better than Superman 3? Yes. Is it better than Superman 1 or 2? No. But does it, would it, would it, an expanded version of it made a really good Superman 3? Yes. Because it's actually, it's a fairly, you know, there are are some twists and turns, but it's a fairly straightforward story in six issues. A movie version would have to be deepened in a number of ways, and I think they could easily do it. But I do feel like it belongs where, it belongs where, you know, it is. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, firm piece of Superman 78 lore as far as I'm, as far as I'm concerned. Yes. Well said. No, I, I echo all of that. In the end, I, I definitely enjoyed this in and of itself, but definitely as part of this Donnerverse. Like you said, it yeah. belongs. I think that's a great way of putting it. I too recommend it. If anyone hasn't read it, uh, I, it's really worthwhile. And just very briefly going back to what we were saying before about a potential follow-up, like you said, the, the hardcover is not out yet. So maybe that's, that will be another Maybe. A piece of the puzzle for DC to take a look at and see how those sales are, and maybe they're yeah, I think it'll be in July. Yeah, I think it's I think it's scheduled for. It had originally been scheduled for the end of 2021, but you know because of delays on on so many different fronts in the comics industry, this it's been moved. I think it's July now of 2022. Well, a lot of changes because initially it was going to be digital first, correct? Yeah, they went digital first, and then they decided make it day you know same day release. And yeah, they, 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 there were a couple of things that they, that they did there, but um, I, I don't know what the holdup is on a, on a trade and it may be very well be that they're waiting, you know, that when they, they've solicited the trade, but maybe they are waiting to make an announcement. And also it might be that Batman 89 has not finished yet. Um, there are still two wishes to go as we speak. And it's, so they've been delayed that that should have been done, I think in January and we're now in, you know, mid to late March. As we're as we're recording this, so it's also possible that the, you know, that they're that maybe they're planning the Batman eighty nine Superman seventy eight crossover, which people really really would love to see. I don't know. We'll mm-hmm. see it. Though. I mean, we'll, we'll see if they do it. Yes, we shall see. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being part of this. I really do appreciate it. 
Well, thanks for having me. I, you know me. I, I get me started. You're never going to get me to stop. So uh, I'm not surprised we went uh, in, an hour and twenty minutes. So you know, I this is this is too much fun not to do. So thank you for having me. I always appreciate it. My pleasure. And audience, please make sure you check out thirteenthdimension.com. And our double feature will resume after this break. We'll be right back. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full-service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina, for people of all ages and walks of life. Since 1983, this nine-time Eisner Award nominee uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material available. They pride themselves on their significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection. Mail-order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available to anyone, anywhere, via mail-order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Film lovers and filmmakers should check out this family of film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. I am an alum of these festivals, and I found them to be very enjoyable and well-run events. Submission information for filmmakers as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news and updates about events, discounts, ticketing information, and more. Also, be sure to listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. A great friend of this show is one of our regular guests, Justin DeVoe. In recent years, Justin has embarked on a truly remarkable fitness journey, which you can see for yourself on Instagram at Real Life Lobo. And if you're looking for guidance in starting or continuing your own fitness journey, check out at Iron and Honor on Instagram. Flat Squirrel Productions is an affiliate of BCW Supplies. The next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions to save 10% on your order. Again, that's promo code FSP. It helps support the show, too. Thanks. The spinoff podcast, Digging for Justice, a DC movie fan journey, starts this April exclusively at my Patreon page. Don't miss it. Check out the show notes for more. Scott, welcome back. Thank you. It's so fun to be back. Well, thank you for joining us for the second half of our double feature here. We're talking about the Jeff Johns, Richard Donner period of action comics following Infinite Crisis. For, I think, about as long as you and I have been talking about potential episode topics that you would want to discuss on this show, you have cited this Jeff Johns era of action comics as one of the the items you would like to discuss. Why? Why has this been uh, on the top of your list for so long? So I, I became a fan of Jeff Johns as a comic book writer, you know, in the early 2000s when he really started making waves at D.C., there was something about his writing that grabbed me because I saw it as this really satisfying blend of like old school superhero storytelling, which I'd grown up with and this sort of modern sensibility. Um, You know, I first saw his writing when he was writing the Wally West flash. And I think most people who are flash fans, especially at that time would agree that it's, it's a high high point in the character's history. Um, he did a, 
an amazing run on Hawkman. He did Teen Titans, JSA. I mean, what he did to expand the Green Lantern and Green Lantern core universe over the course of 10 years was pretty astounding. Uh, even his foray into Batman with the Batman Earth One books, it manages to just take the elements of those characters that we know really well and not be slavish to them, add new elements of the mythology, new wrinkles, update them for the 21st century. And that was just something that was really appealing to me. So when he jumped on with, with Superman, I wanted to see what he was going to do with a character that I know you and I both adore. So um, I, I read it. I was, I was way more pleased than I wasn't. So the tone of this one may be um, slightly different than our last recording. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to talk all about it. Cool. Well, that was going to be my, my next question is the, the extent to which it held up for you. So it sounds like it did. It sounds like you enjoyed it even all these years later upon reread. Yeah, it did. Uh, you know, I remembered as I was reading the experience of having read it the first time and the joy of it. This time I was able to take a little bit more of a critical eye because I, I was familiar with the broad strokes of the stories. So I was able to focus on things that I didn't necessarily focus on the first time. So I'm excited to get into it. Gotcha. So I mentioned this at the top of the episode, but I will reiterate what it is that we're discussing here. So this was a run of comics between 2006, 2008. Part of the reason it spanned so many years was that the first storyline that we'll be talking about last sun encountered numerous delays and took quite some time before it finally wrapped up in one of the uh, action comics annuals. But the storylines in particular are Last Sun, co-written by Superman filmmaker Richard Donner and Jeff Johns, drawn beautifully uh, by Adam Kubert. And then we also have the Brainiac storyline. At that point, Donner had departed Action Comics, but Jeff Johns remained as a writer. And for that arc, he was joined by Gary Frank, who, and I know we'll get into this, but in a very major way, really captured the, the likeness and the feel of those Donner Superman movies. So those are the two primary storylines. I know also it's not part of our main discussion here, but uh, I know we'll also touch on Superman's secret origin, Jeff John's attempt at the origin story with Gary Frank. And I do also know in case anyone's like, Hey, what about that escape from bizarro world story? There was also that three part story that John's and Donner co-wrote. Uh, it didn't quite fit into our focus here today, but I do know that that's out there and maybe at some point on the podcast we'll discuss it. But primarily what Scott and I are working off of is the Superman Last Son of Krypton trade paperback, which collects the Last Son and the Brainiac storylines. So that's what we'll be getting into. Now, I mentioned the art. It's, it's again, I, I really love the Adam Kubert stuff in Last Son. So I, I, I won't go too far in saying this, but it does kind of break your heart a little bit that Gary Frank wasn't able to draw one of Donner's arcs. I agree. Um, you know, I, I hadn't even thought about it until you just brought it up, but, but I felt myself just having a strong reaction when you said it. Um, yeah. It would have been nice to see that pairing because more than any other artist that I can think of in Superman's history Gary Frank is drawing Superman as Christopher Reeve. I mean, even, you know, even when he's drawing young Clark Kent in the Superman secret origin, even as a child, it looks like what you would imagine Christopher Reeve to look like as a child. It's, it's, it's really quite uncanny how consistently he's able to capture that, capture that look and feel. Um, so for those reasons, obviously it made sense to include, you know, include them here. Yes, definitely. 
So you mentioned one of our prior discussions. So recently on the podcast, we covered the rebirth era. And in both the episode I did with you on the Dan Jurgens action run, and then the episode I did with Bernie on the Peter Tomasi, Pat Gleason Superman run, I, I spoke in both of those episodes about how reading those runs in a vacuum unfortunately hindered my enjoyment of them. I know a lot of fans at the time were more into them because they maybe didn't like the direction of the New 52, and this was a return to the Superman that they had more affection for. But reading it totally in a vacuum, you sort of lose that effect, and then you're just left with the stories as they are. And, you know, we had lengthy discussions about them, so I won't rehash them. But that was an instance where reading in a vacuum sort of hurt a little bit. Here's the flip. So, and I knew this was, we were, we were getting to this. I was, I was curious to see how it would shake out. I read this when it originally came out. As I've talked about before, this was the period of time following Infinite Crisis where I had made the switch totally to trade paperback. So based on that and based on my memory, I don't, I don't believe I was getting these issues as they came out. But when it was eventually collected, I, I sat down and read it. I also, as a, you know, most of the audience knows I worked at a comic shop for a long time. So I suspect I probably read the issues at the shop because I was, I'm sure I was curious about this. And I've mentioned this before in other episodes, but it, it lost me on the very first page when, <laughs> when Superman goes to the fortress and he says to Jor-El, the, you know, the floating head right out of the Donner movies. And he says, I've lived, I've lived as one of them for many years. And I just felt like, oh, that's not, that's not the way Clark would view his place in the world. I don't think he would see it as a as a, a us them sort of thing. So right off the bat, I mean, it was one of those just for me an off note that just immediately colored and unfortunately soured my view of the story moving forward. And throughout the Last Sun story and Brainiac, both of these that we're talking about, you see so many elements from the Donner films injected into the comics from the visual language of the fortress and the phantom zone to the characterization of Clark and Perry and Jimmy. And this is where I know people will be split because if you really love the Donner stuff and want to see that in the comic, it's great. But I just felt like it was very divorced from the version of the character we had been reading in comics. And in fairness, we were coming out of Infinite Crisis, so that's an opportunity for a little bit of a reset. I get that. But it just made it really hard for me to connect with it initially. But now reading it in a vacuum and more now in the context of the Donnerverse, I was able to appreciate it in a, in a better way than I did before. I understand that perspective entirely. I don't remember, to be honest, whether I had that same feeling at the time. I was reading this in single issues at the time. I, I switched over to trades shortly afterwards. Um, I do remember liking it a lot. I don't remember specifically why, but I know that on the reread, um, I didn't have that same thought because I think I'm just at a point in my life just as a person and as a, as a comics fan and, and reader and scholar that um, I'm, I'm much more willing to accept a story that sits a little bit outside of, we want to call it continuity or, or the, 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 the trends of the, the era in which they appear and just get a good story. I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, you know, it's sort of the approach that like the DC films are taking now where they're willing to take a character uh, and just sort of tell a story, whether it connects to other things 
is, is almost irrelevant. Um, but can you get, you know, the vision of a creative team to tell a really good story with that character, even if it doesn't line up? And so I liked the idea that it was Jeff Johns, who at this point was now an established comics writer with Richard Donner, someone with a very long history with the Superman character and put, and, and of course they worked together because Jeff Johns was like a sort of a, an intern apprentice kind of a figure for, for Donner uh, and, and to see what they would do with the character, knowing that they were going to take more elements from the film world into the comics, even again, if it didn't line up with what was happening in the comics after this, it, it starts to sort of dovetail more with what was happening in the overall DC universe. When Jeff John starts writing it on his own, Gary Frank comes on as, as the artist and some of the elements that are planted in this story end up going forward, like, you know, Zod and his you know master plan and, you know, recreating Krypton here on earth and, and all that. But, but as a story in and of itself, I find it really enjoyable. Right on. No, I agree with, you know, with, with virtually all of that. And I mean, I will say it definitely has this cinematic dynamic quality to it. It reads really well, especially the last son uh, arc uh, that uh, as it was what I'm referring to. Uh, I guess as I'm sort of reconciling my feelings <laughs> towards this, <laughs> I, I agree with you certainly in the sense that for myself now, it's more about, is it a good story? I'm, I'm, I am definitely less concerned about how it fits for sure that I I'm totally with you I guess though and this goes back to what's become a little bit of a theme in this Donnerverse run of episodes and even goes back to the first half of this double feature that people are listening to <laughs> where something like Superman 78 I'm totally on board with because that's meant to be part of that universe it's an extension of it just in a different medium and it succeeds in that respect wonderfully but as far as injecting elements from the the Donner movies or, or any other incarnation into the comics, but especially the Donner movies, I feel like it's, that's where I sort of hit a little bit of, of a wall because I, I, I was thinking about this beforehand. I'm like, what is it that really bothers me so much about this? I conceptually, like, what is it? And I think for me, I'm much more receptive to changes that, are trying something new or different as opposed to, hey, you know this other version that you really like? Like we're going to try to force it into, into that. I think that's where I have a little bit of an issue. And I've, you know, I've been saying this in a lot of these episodes. Like I love Christopher Reeve's take on the character. I love the world that Donner created. It's magical. It's beautiful. But at the same time, that's not the only way that I need or want to see the character presented. So when we see these attempts to try to mold the comic book version into that i i do feel a little bit of frustration towards it i get the appeal though i get why creators would want to do it i get why some fans would like it and i will say in this specific instance i do very much appreciate the fact that this isn't just jeff johns trying to tell a donner-esque story it's donner himself so right. that makes me a lot more open to it and kind of on that note i really really love the idea that we get to see richard donner tell a Zod, a Superman Zod story uh, from start to finish. Uh, because, of course, he utilized those Kryptonian villains in Superman 2, but famously was fired from the film. And even though we did ultimately get the Donner cut of Superman 2, which will be the subject of our next episode, 
that still did contain footage that he didn't shoot and it was not something that he was able to to fully realize uh whereas this was so i really did appreciate that so so let me ask you a question then would you have been more comfortable with this story if rather than being told in the monthly action comics series if they had made it its own miniseries, Superman, Last Son of Krypton, a whatever it is, a six issue miniseries that acts and could act in part as part of continuity, like they could still bring over the Zod stuff for later stories, but really sits on its own. I think so. I think if this had been akin to Superman 78, where it had been the lost Superman 2, as originally mm-hmm. conceived by Richard Donner, or whatever you want to call it, I think right. I would have been more open to that and you know you might say well like what is what is the difference but i think and i don't mean to split hairs but i do think i do see a distinction between telling a story that is firmly set within the universe which i like i said i'm more receptive to versus trying to insert elements from those movies into a different incarnation it's not the end of the world but that's where i do have a little bit of difficulty so yes to your question i think i would have been more more open to that but it's a fair criticism when you know, we're talking about a publishing house that has chosen as a format to serialize its stories, right? To take one title, Action Comics, and to number them, 809, 810, 811, 812. And then that continues from pre-existing stories and then grows out to more stories. So when you situate it there, naturally readers are going to want to put it in in that context right it grows out of what came before and it moves on to what's next so i think it's fair um for me at this stage as i as i said before for at this stage i can pull one trade off my shelf and read it in isolation i didn't read i didn't reread the action comics issues that came before it and i didn't go ahead and reread the action comics issues that came after it obviously i did read brainiac but um but I didn't go on after that. So when you do get it in isolation, it, it feels like it could just be a miniseries if you ignore the action comics designation. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And that's what I tried to remind myself of, of as I was doing this read. And yeah. to be clear, I, I really did enjoy Last Sun in particular. I enjoyed Brainiac too, but not to the same extent. And I'm jumping to the end and I'm spoiling it, but hopefully <laughs> people have read these been out for over a decade now. We, yeah. Pa Kent passes in the Brainiac storyline, and I've got some feelings about that. But le- but last son in particular, I really did enjoy. L- let's talk a bit about the ways in which it it brings the Donnerverse to life in the comics. So, like I said before, we do have this visual language of the of the fortress looks like it's pulled right from the movie, and when Superman is sent to the Phantom Zone, we have the same visual cue uh, to, to to bring that to mind. I mentioned the characterization, which we can get into more, but let me let me toss it to you. Where do you see the Donnerverse in this? Um, so yeah, the, the the visual element of it is, I, I think probably the most notable. Um, the most notable feature, like what Adam Kubert is doing here, you know, use the word cinematic before it really, it really is. I mean, he's doing things with double page spreads and, and things that, that widen, you know, what the traditional comic book page or panel is going to look like. I mean, he's so inventive with his panel layouts, particularly when he brings in the Phantom Zone, because it's supposed to seem so alien and so uh, disoriented. So, you know, he's got these, 
panels that sort of fracture with the opening of the Phantom Zone, and then they sort of even out as the Phantom Zone closes um, when he's doing aerial battles, because when you've got Superman and Zod, you can. Uh, you know, they're basically rectangular panels, but they've got this sort of wavy quality to them to sort of show air currents and things. It's just that understanding of how figures might move in space, both in an earthly plane and an unearthly plane, that I think does things that even some of the technology that Donner had to work with at the time that he was making the Superman movies didn't necessarily do as well. Um, but there is definitely this filmic uh, quality to it, which I, which I just, I love. Yes. Same here. And I know I didn't give a plot synopsis. I, I know I suspect this is a story people are familiar with, but for anyone who isn't or needs a refresher, a Kryptonian boy arrives on earth and Superman of course, immediately goes into protector mode, uh, which leads to some great moments, which we can talk about. And then we get our first twist, which is, or second, I guess, since the boy would be the first, <laughs> when uh, Zod, Nan, and Ursa emerge from the Phantom Zone, we find out that the child is actually the son of Zod and Ursa, and that kicks off our, our central conflict. At a certain point in the story, Superman is banished to the Phantom Zone, where he encounters Monel, who ultimately helps him escape. And when Superman returns, Zod has you know, been able to uh, basically dominate the other heroes on the planet and... Uh, assert his rule but of course uh superman by teaming up with lex metallo brainiac and parasite uh, is able to turn the tide and banish everyone back to the phantom zone including unfortunately the young boy Lorzod or chris kent as he is known once he's in the care of, of clark and lois sacrifices himself in order to close the the portal to the phantom zone so that, those are sort of the the broad strokes of the story i want to circle back to the the characterization in particular and how it's evoking the Donner movies. But I don't want to forget this. One of the headlines here is this is the Zod because, and we've talked about this on the show and especially when, when you and I did our crisis to death episodes and everything for a very long time, post from crisis on infinite earth until infinite crisis, which is right before this story. Anytime Zod was used, it was always, sort of a cheat, right? Because there was this edict from DC that Superman, Kal-El, had to be the last son of Krypton. Yeah. But writers wanted to use Zod. Fans like Zod. What are you going to do? So we get Pocket Universe Zod. We <laughs> got the uh, the Russian Zod from the Joe Kelly right. run. We got the... I, you know, it's funny. I read it not that long ago, but the like alternate Phantom Zone version from For Tomorrow, the Brian Azzarello, Jim Lee story. There was the version of Zod that was part of the return to Krypton storylines that Jeff Loeb and Joe Kelly did that was in the Phantom Zone. It ended up being a construct of Brainiac 13. So we're talking about a, roughly a handful of versions of Zod that weren't the actual Kryptonian general. And now here we have him. But isn't that the reason why you limit the portrayal for so long so that when the time is right, when the right story comes along, when the right creators come along with the right story, then you reintroduce that character, right? It's that whole, you know, cyclical nature of comics and the sort of illusion of change, you know, there are edicts that come and go. And, and if, if they had allowed Zod to be used whenever for all of those years, then, you know, this story certainly wouldn't pack the punch that it does um, when we got it. And of course, this story then leads to like, like several years of Zod-centric 
Superman stories, again, with the new Krypton stuff. So, you know, to, to keep him out of the limelight, to then reintroduce him here, I felt, I, you know, I remembered that and I felt the weight of it here in a way that I might not have if we're like, oh, okay, so a new writer takes over. And of course, you know, they reintroduce Zod as the, as the big bad, if it had happened so many times, you know, it's the way I feel about the Joker and Batman, you know, every new writer wants to get their hands on Joker. And it's not that much of a surprise when Joker shows up. So I actually, I'm glad that they kept Zod away for a while because it made this story a little bit better. All right. So your point is well taken and I'm glad it worked for you. Honestly, I respectfully, I, I disagree, I, I guess in the sense that all of those other versions of Zod like we know what we know what's going on here and it just felt like bending over backwards to have the character without really having the character and i guess if they just didn't use any version of zod for all that time and then they did it's like okay fair enough but i guess my feeling was it's like we're clearly like i said bending over backwards to try to get around this rule it just sort of felt like what what are we doing here and i felt the same way about supergirl too even though there's some really good Mm. stuff with the matrix version of the character but in any event, here we do get Zod and Ursa and Nan, and we do they do introduce this very interesting backstory with, uh, and we just get it teased here. I've not yet read the New Krypton saga. I assume it gets explained further there. Uh, I think it, I, if I remember correctly, it's developed a little bit more, but they hint enough at it here to add a wrinkle to a character who basically had very little personality up until this point. I mean. You know, he's the bruiser. He, you know, he doesn't really speak, uh, and he's just the muscle. Right. So what we find out here is that he and Jorel had been allies, and then I, I guess the the implication is that the council lobotomized him more or less, right? Turning him into this uh, mindless, wordless brute. So yeah, that definitely gives a different spin to a character. Maybe you wouldn't think about too much previously. So I thought that was interesting. But as far as the again, the way the Donniverse lives in this and this was again initially when i was reading it for the first time this is where it was it, i was continuing to struggle with it but in the characterization particularly of clark and perry and jimmy and cat grant even though cat grant was not from the the donnerverse but um, i felt like those characters had all regressed like perry was way gruffer than he had been at that point in time. Jimmy Olsen, I felt like they had walked back a lot of his growth and professional advancement. Uh, Cat Grant, you know, they're, they do, and that wasn't even in this story, actually. I'm jumping ahead to Brainiac, so forgive me. Yeah. But uh, the Cat Grant in the Brainiac storyline, you know, was, I don't know how you want to uh, describe her, but uh, definitely seemed to be more uh, one, one note, seemed to be a lot more superficial, and they they do talk about how the the death of her son, right, which had happened in the Triangle era many years earlier, was perhaps to blame for for this um, for this change because she'd been off the board for a while. So at least there was an attempt to acknowledge that. But uh, but the biggest thing was Clark in these stories. This was no longer the competent, confident, capable Clark. This was a Clark who definitely more mild mannered at a minimum. I think the thing that threw me was, uh, you know, Perry is chastising him early in the, in the last son story. And, uh, you know, Clark makes some excuse to leave, to go, uh, you know, check out what we find out is, is the, the pod with, um, Lord, Lord Zod. But, you know, Perry has a line of like, I don't know what Lois sees in him. Like out of all the guys in Metropolis, she picks him. 
and again, it's just, I'm, I'm getting around this now, but at the time it just felt like, whoa, this is a big departure. It is. And that's one of those areas where I think having it, having the story appear in action comics may have, may have weakened the story a little bit. Um, and, and again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm only thinking about it now in this reread because I'm able to take it out of context, but that's, that stuff didn't really bother me because knowing, especially that I was reading these for an episode about the, uh, the Donner version of Superman, I just leaned all the way into the Donner version of Superman and it fit. So I, I didn't, it didn't, I didn't rub up against it, I guess, in some of the ways that you did. I, I think, I think I wasn't trying to kind of have it both ways where like I needed it to fit what Superman comics were at the time. And as a representation of what Donner had done with the movies, I just sort of leaned all the way into the Donnerness of it. Do you know what I mean? Which was the assignment that I gave both of us. Right, you just, you right. just did a better job of it than I did. <laughs> I always try to do my homework well. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, like I said, that definitely was, was the mindset that I went in with. I, like I said, it's in some instances easier than others. What What's interesting too is that even though, yes, this is, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Donnerverse in the comics in a lot of ways, it it didn't, obviously, it didn't just discard what was going on in the comics at the time. So Lois and Clark are married and Jonathan and Martha are still alive, at least in the last Sun arc. So, you know, so that was interesting to sort of see that blend of the Donnerverse and the modern comics. So I, I did, I appreciated that. It was, again, a different, so unlike Superman 78, right, which was really just that universe in comic book form, this was a, a bit of a blend, um, which, you know, again, was interesting to see. That's why I said what I said at the top of the show about, you know, Jeff Johns as a writer, that one of the things I think he does really well is take what came from the past, the things that fans tend to really enjoy about a character or concept, and then mix it with some of the newer sensibilities and storytelling elements of, of modern 21st century comics and, and creates sort of a hybrid of the two. Um, I find that really attractive for reading material. Not everybody does. And, and, and I get that. I, I understand why that might not be depending on, you know, when you started reading and what you started reading. Sure. I got to tell you, one of the things, one of the bits that I really loved, I thought was very funny was this notion that Jimmy Olsen keeps, you know, missing the, the key shot for Perry but on right. top of that, that he keeps getting photographed by rival newspapers in the middle of the action was so funny to me. It, you know, I think that's initially what Perry is yelling at Jimmy about at the start of the story, but then it happens again later and Jimmy's like, oh, Chief is going to kill me for this. I just thought that was a very funny bit that it's not only that he's missing out, he's getting scooped, but he's, he's becoming part of it because he's getting photographed <laughs> by these other photographers. I thought that was really funny. Yeah, no, I, I, I enjoyed that. But again, it, you know, that is an example of, of a Jimmy who is less capable and, you know, has, as you said, regressed. And, and, and again, I, I get that. I, I, was, I was looking as much as I could in these stories for, you know, specific ties back to the Donnerverse. And there are. But what's interesting in, in Last Son in particular was I saw more connections to the future than I did to the past, especially you and I having talked about the Jurgens rebirth stuff. I mean, 
you know, having Chris Kent's appear here seemed like this weird precursor to what we get later with John Kent's where Clark and Lois actually have a son. And there's a couple of real interesting ironies in the dialogue too, where, um, where Clark and Lois, I can't remember which one of, it, of, of them says it to the other, but they say, we can't be this boy's mother and father when later they are. And, and somebody actually tells them your biological inferiority. Oh, uh, someone tells Lois, I think it's Jorel, tells Lois, your biological inferiority prevents you from bearing his child. Or maybe it's Zod. I don't, I don't remember. I think Zod says that, but then jor at the end of the story, jor tells Superman that they would not be able to have a child together biologically. Right. So you're reading those lines in light of what we've already read, you know, from, you know, 15 years later. It's really interesting. Yes. <laughs> really interesting. I had the same thought. And that's why, again, I'm so glad that we did the rebirth discussion, uh, you know, not too long ago, because I definitely had that in my head as well. And yeah, like you said, it's, it's funny to see this, this version of, of them as parents. And it doesn't last very long, though. Interestingly, due to all of the delays in last son, if memory serves, although I wasn't really following the other, the, the Superman title so much at the time, but I believe that Chris Kent popped up there during this sort of break in between issues. I'm almost positive. He shows up in at least one of the other titles um, but yeah, to see them in that, in that parental role, but also, yeah, to your point, I thought the same thing. It's, I think it's Lois who's like initially very resistant to this idea. So yeah, it was funny to get this trial run of them as parents. Uh, and then, but yeah, also to see how at, at least one of them, how their attitude changed so much. And again, we're talking many years in between stories and different creators and everything, but I also, you know, I can't help but wonder, and maybe this wasn't necessarily an inspiration, but I wonder if this spark some idea from somebody at DC, right? Like during even this, you know, short period of time, like, oh, what would it be like if they were parents, like actually parents for, you know, not just a few issues? Yeah. And and this element also creeps into the Superman Returns movie where there is a child at the center of it. And his Kryptonian-ness is questioned in the in the film, if I remember correctly. But but still there, it, it felt sort of like that. And we know that that movie was trying to capture you know, very much the feel of the, of the Donner films uh, as well. So um, I just, I, I couldn't help but see those connections even more than I saw connections backwards in the, oddly enough, in the Brainiac arc that Donner had no part of, I saw more like specific visual moments from the Donner. I mean, the, the Lois and the helicopter falling off a roof scene uh, oh no, that was, I'm sorry. That's that secret. From, or, I think that's secret. Oh, origin. that was from secret origin. It's all Gary Frank. So it's mixing in my brain. Um, but yeah, I feel like that, even that story had more from, from Donner than last son of Krypton did for me. It, it's interesting. And I don't know if Donner and or Johns talked about this in interviews at the time. I'm not sure, but I wonder I don't have anything to back this up. So this is just pure speculation on my part. But I, if I had to guess, I feel like it was of the two, Jeff Johns, who was pushing more for the Donnerverse in the comics. Just a gut feeling that I have. And, and I, you know, I think the fact that you see maybe more of that in the, in the, the other stories that he, that he did without Donner maybe kind of speaks to that a little bit. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I thought was really interesting and cool about this was you know, it wasn't, this wasn't 
a rehash of Superman 2, or it wasn't just a rehash of Superman 2, certainly in the sense of the villains we're dealing with, but obviously the entire, uh, you know, emotional core of it shifted, whereas, as everyone knows, right, in Superman 2, Superman's faced with this decision of whether to live as a human with Lois and give up his role as Superman and give up his powers, and that's our central, you know, uh, personal tension in the movie, Uh, whereas here, you know, Lois and Clark are a married couple on solid ground, so that that's not at play, but we do have this, um, you know, this story with the young boy that they're trying to protect and trying to keep safe from his parents. So I thought, uh, again, like it hits a lot of familiar beats, but is also its own story. So I, I did, I did appreciate that. I did too. And, and I, I was fully on board for the, the two twists. Number one, the appearance of this child, uh, who, by all accounts is Kryptonian uh, and then the reveal that he's actually Zod and Ursa's son. Um, and I, and I really enjoyed the resolution of that where uh, in sacrificing himself, he becomes more the spiritual heir of Clark and Lois uh, than certainly of, of Zod and Ursa, even if he's biologically theirs. And, and, and to me, that was really satisfying uh, arc. I remember at the time being frustrated because if when you were reading in single issues, the individual action comics issues all came out, I think fairly, fairly well monthly. But then that last chapter was delayed, I think by like almost half a year. And so they just kept going on with other stories. I think the Brainiac arc that followed, it just kind of went on and we never got the conclusion to the story until they came out with the action comics annual many, many, many months later that capped it off. So getting to read it now all in one, I found that that, that conclusion was even more satisfying because obviously it was immediate. You know? Yes. Uh, I, I'm sure it was very difficult to get the full, of, full effect of the story reading it with those delays. I'll also say, do you remember that the Phantom Zone issue was in 3D and it came with 3D glasses? I do not remember that. It did, and I see, I don't remember now. The, so the trade that we have, thankfully, uh, does away with that because I, okay. I'm not, you know, for anyone who likes sitting there with 3D glasses, awesome. I'm not one of them, but I, I can't remember because I used to have, and I've since sold it, but I, I had the original hardcover of the Last Sun storyline that they put out, just Last Sun, not the one that also includes Brainiac that we have. And I can't remember if that one had the glasses or or not, but in any event, uh, yeah, I definitely prefer that Phantom Zone issue without the 3D effect. I think it works perfectly well without it, and you definitely get the feel that you're in uh, another dimension, another plane of existence, so I think that was fine. And, you know, that was an instance of us going beyond where the Donner films had taken us, maybe where they could have taken us. Although, in an upcoming episode of this Donnerverse event, we will be talking about the very unfortunate Supergirl movie, uh, which did show us the Phantom Zone mm-hmm. as best it could, I suppose. But certainly in the Donner movies proper, we never get to see what the Phantom Zone is. Uh, so I thought, yeah, I thought it was it was cool to go into that world. Like I feel like that was an opportunity to make use of the visual medium of uh, of of comics and the lack of you know being bound by budget or technology or anything like that, and, and to show that. Absolutely. Because I mean, in the films, really all you get when somebody is banished to the phantom zone is, you know, there's a quick cut from their, their presence on earth to them just sort of looking out from this rotating pane of glass into space. And we don't really know what's on the other side. We, we, the intimation is that it's horrible, but we never really see it. So 
you know, choosing an artist like Adam Kubert, who at this point was already a legend in his own right, forgetting about his family legacy in, in the comics world, you know, I thought was a was a brilliant choice because he's able to work in a whole bunch of different styles. Um, you know, his his style when drawing the Phantom Zone is he basically takes the sort of rough pencil sketch type style without inks and does like, you know, really loose color washes over them. So it's not the big, bold, solid color inked structures that we have in the real world. And it really helps to define the difference between the two realms. So I, I didn't need the 3D either. I didn't remember the 3D, but I certainly didn't need it. I was, I was totally on board visually for the whole, uh, for that whole thing. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. Although, counterpoint to what we were just saying, I <laughs> obviously we're we're going to get stories in the Phantom Zone. There's there have been too many stories for there for someone not to kind of show us that. But I do feel that in the comics, but definitely when we're talking about film and TV adaptations, I feel like it's one of those things where it works. The Phantom Zone works better when it's left to your imagination, like you said, when you see them. Sort of floating out in space and the pressed up against the, the the glass, as it were, you know, you're you're imagining the hell that they're being subjected to. When you actually see it, I I feel like a lot of times it's a little bit of a letdown, especially when we're talking live action, because whether it's the Supergirl movie or Smallville or the Supergirl show, it's usually just like a cave. I mean, it's, like, it's right. kind of like what it comes down to. It's like a windy desert and cave, which is you know is fine, but there, I think there is something to leaving it more to your imagination, but at the same time, it's like I, you know, at, at a certain point, it's it's inevitable that we're going to go to the Phantom Zone. But again, in the context of this, I thought it was realized very nicely. Yeah, and and I thought using Monel in the way that they did to show that he's safer in the Phantom Zone than he is uh, anywhere else, right? That that's what's sort of keeping him yeah. alive because he's. He's uh, he's got poisoning, right? He's got a yeah, lead lead poisoning, lead poisoning on on Earth, so he can't exist here. Um, and he does ultimately try to make the sacrifice to come out and you know uh, and help, but but ultimately has to go back and to see what it what it does to him. It's sort of a neat reversal of like, well, that's what would happen to somebody else in the Phantom Zone is what happens to Monel out of the Phantom Zone. It was a is a. Definitely a, a, a neat trick. It's nice to see Monel again. He's a character I've always I've always enjoyed. Not I, I'm not interested in reading like a Monel series, but as a guest star, every now and again, I think he's I think he's great. You know, and, and I was happy to have him. Yeah, I get that. And well, it's funny because as much as we're talking about bringing the Donnerverse into the comics, this was also Jeff Johns bringing back a lot of pre-crisis elements. So you know, you know, Monel is one example, but also the Rainbow Kryptonite. Oh, yes. that Lex utilizes and arms Metallo with. You know, for a very long time, we were really primarily just dealing with green and occasionally like in the crisis of the Crimson Kryptonite story that we uh -huh. talked about, you know, you had red kryptonite. But yep. for the most part, it was it was green. So now we're getting more of that rainbow variety back, which I I actually, I don't, I don't object to. And I actually do sort of, I think overall I, I land on the side of being a fan of that. And I think that's informed in large part by Smallville because they utilized a good variety of kryptonite over the course of the series, some more effectively than others. But over the course of the show, we got green and red and black and silver and blue and gold. So, you know, they, they did a lot. So I think that has given me some affection for that. So I, I actually kind of welcome that in this. And it also gives Metallo 
a, a bit of an upgrade. And I, I thought that was neat. Yeah, I felt like all of the villains in that that this version of the Superman Revenge Squad sort of get upgrades. Um, and, and what you're talking about really is, I think, Jeff Johns pulling elements that he loved really from the Silver Age. You know, the idea of, of the multicolored kryptonite, the idea that, that Clark is no longer the last Kryptonian, you know, bringing back other Kryptonians. I mean, even going so far, and you mentioned briefly, you know, Supergirl, you know, in the Brainiac arc is actually a really interesting wrinkle for her to, to experience sort of reliving the trauma of the destruction of, of Krypton. Uh, because unlike Clark, she was there. She was old enough to have lived through it and to, to remember losing everyone and everything she ever knew. Um, so I thought using that was really interesting. Like she, like she is that refugee who, you know, who still carries with them all of the memories and trauma from the place that she left. So I, I actually enjoyed that part of it, even if it meant that Clark was no longer the last Kryptonian. And I go back and forth on that element all the time because, you know, we've seen enough Superman over the years where sometimes he is and sometimes he isn't. And it just kind of goes in waves. Um, but if it's, I feel like if it's told well, if the characterizations are on point, if it's the story, I'm willing to go with it in most cases. There are going to be a couple of elements that I know you and I are going to talk about that just don't play well for us ever. Right. Yeah. Whether or not he should be the last is an interesting question. I don't know that I've necessarily come up with an absolute answer for myself. I think with a lot of these things, you know, it depends on the story, like to your point and, and what, what we're doing. I think that he should if, if there are other kryptonians there certainly shouldn't be many so i think so i think if he's our starting point as the survivor of the planet and then we do have these phantom zone criminals certainly the the three we have here and and whoever else might be floating around i'm i'm on board with that because there's an added tragedy i mean I, I guess what is my what am i trying to say here with the destruction of krypton with this the the origin story as our starting point there is this inherent tragedy to it and so I think to the extent that more Kryptonians diminish that tragedy, that's a misstep. But to the extent that that overall tragedy is maintained and or that you're even able to open up new pockets of it, not that I just want the characters to suffer, but we have to have tension, <laughs> then I think sure. it works. So the fact that there are these other Kryptonians, but they're criminals and they're banished to this other dimension. And anytime they either escape or Superman tries to give them another chance, it backfires and he's left alone again. I think that's, that's really interesting. And I agree with you totally about, about Supergirl. I think if you're going to use Supergirl, this is the way to use her because it offers a different flavor. Like you said, she has these memories of Krypton. And on top of that, she was sent here to take care of of the person who's now looking out for her. So that, you know, completely flips her, you know, uh, you know, her original quest and everything. So uh, again, so I think other Kryptonians used judiciously in a way that still preserves the, the core of, of that rocketing away from Krypton. I'm on board with. Yeah. Because I think for, for, you know, Superman being the, the sort of key aspirational, figure here and obviously the centerpiece of all these comics um you know aside from the initial tragedy of the origin his life ended up actually turning out pretty well like you know other than the 
the, the repeated conflict of, you know, villains and catastrophes that he has to stop and all that, you know, his life is on a, a, on a generally positive trajectory. Supergirl is the opposite, right? She still had to undergo that, that tragedy and in a much deeper way because she was a teenager when it happened, but then the reversal of, you know, having a purpose in coming here to take care of her baby cousin. And then that purpose being thwarted by, you know, her detour um, and then, you know, being here and having the same noble intentions as her cousin, but not really being able to, to fulfill them for two reasons. One, she's always going to be in the shadow of Superman always. And number two, just, just the, the nature of being a woman on earth, you know, sort of being an American woman and not being given the same sort of respect as Superman would be given, you know, and, and she's not even super woman, right. she's super girl. Right. So it's sort of the diminutive, the younger designation of it. So she's, I think she's had to struggle in ways that, that Clark never really had to, even though their starting points are fairly similar. So that's why I, I gravitated towards using Supergirl here, even though she's not a main player here, she's enough one to, to show the, the differences. Oh, I thought they used her to great effect in the Brainiac storyline. And you really see, you know, she's genuinely afraid of Brainiac. And that immediately lets the reader know what a, what a threat Brainiac is. So we've now moved into Brainiac. I just want to circle back to last on one, one other yeah, yeah. big piece, and especially going back to this idea of Lois and Clark as parents. I love Clark, the protector of Chris Kent in this story. And what's, what's really cool, especially in the first couple of issues, you get to see different sides of him. So when... Uh, he's in the the government lab, the room that they've set up for him, and he's scared, and he doesn't want Superman to go. And Superman's like, "I'll be here when you wake up." And it's you know, it's this the, just the kindness and compassion and tenderness from him. Then when Superman shows up the next day and finds out that he's been moved, and he you know tracks down the uh, the, the the government officials who are responsible for it, the the righteous rage and fury that he unleashes. Uh, that, that Papa Bear protector mode. So I liked. So I liked him caring for this boy, and especially doing it in different ways. And you see how he behaves towards Chris, but you also see how he'll act in defense of Chris. And this is all amplified when we get more of the backstory with Zod and Ursa, and the fact that they've been abusing this this child. Oh yeah, uh, which adds that whole other component to it. So uh, yeah, I, I I really appreciated that piece of the story. Yeah, those are the elements that you and I said in our last talk we loved most about the Rebirth era and wanted more of, which was the family dynamic stuff, the interpersonal relationships. It's, you know, look, I love a good fight scene as much as anybody and in a visual medium. It's really exciting. But the reality is if I don't care about the characters, then I don't care who gets punched and where and how hard. It doesn't matter. Um, so to see, you know, to see Clark and Lois in their relationship as husband and wife with a new element in it, right? Because we've seen them operate as husband and wife before, and, and certainly that was nothing new, but to have a child in the mix, whether it's theirs or not, is is new. And then to see them act as parents to this child is new. And so I I felt myself really gravitating towards those those moments, even more so than than the physicality which I also enjoyed because I felt like the balance was right. You know, it didn't lean one, you know, too heavily one way or the other. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I, I, I also enjoyed it. 
I'll just wrap up by saying that. <laughs> no, 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 right on. And then, you know, moving ahead to the Brainiac arc, again, by this point, Donner had left, so Johns was writing solo, and we now have Gary Frank, and we really feel like we are in the world of the Donner films. And, you know, we talked about the ways in which the story uses Supergirl. Uh, Supergirl also delivers critical new information to her cousin, which is that he and we, the audience, have never actually met Brainiac. We've only ever met Brainiac's probes and drones, uh, and the real Brainiac is is out on the ship. How'd you feel about that, especially given our our journey through the early <laughs> Triangle era? Uh, so the, the Brainiac that you and I encountered in the Triangle era was primarily this, this Milton Fine version of the character, which I never liked. I never really liked. I think I said it at the time. Like, it's just, it's fine, but it, it was just never really my thing. Uh, my first experience with Brainiac was the super the Kenner Superpowers action figure, where he's basically this robot with this domed head with a brain in it and all that. And that was fine. It was the, you know, the Super Friends version of it. It was, it was fine. Um, but I never really loved that version either. Um, so... For me, Brainiac has always served the function in Superman of being the brains to Superman's bra, right? How does how does all of Superman's strength and, and abilities, how do they defeat someone who is just so much smarter than he is? So so smart, in fact, that he can defend against most of the strength and the and the ability. So it, it renders Superman almost powerless. And I like that tension. What what pleased me about this version of Brainiac is that this Brainiac, we get a version that is both brains and brawn. He's a hulking figure who can take Superman physically and is that much smarter than he is. So the threat level is now higher than it's ever been. And the stakes are not just physical for Superman, but they're personal because it deals with Krypton and some of the bottled cities and Supergirl's parentage. And, it, it, you know, it gets really personal. So for me, I really liked this version of Brainiac. It felt like a leveling up in a really exciting way rather than a, a, a recycling of old versions of something. Well said. And I, and I would, I would agree with, with really all of that. Uh, I, I think and I haven't reread this issue in a long time, but I think what sort of has always bugged me a little bit is that John's used the same trick with toy man and the right, idea right. that other toy men we've encountered were, uh, you know, were, were robots essentially that he had created. So the one that had murdered cat Grant's son in the early nineties was this rogue Android he had created. And I just felt like I, I think it works way better in the brainiac context because, you know, while I have some, some affection for the Milton Fine version rooted mostly in, in nostalgia. I, I'm not married to that version either. And I think this, what we get here is more compelling ultimately. Uh, whereas with Toy Man, I feel like, and, and again, this you know wasn't part of our, our reading here, but I felt like that did more of a disservice to to that villain and to the some of the stories we had gotten, particularly yeah. that Cat that Grandma, which was really powerful and, and affecting. So I guess yeah. it was just sort of like, hey, you're going to this well twice in a, in a very short period of time but i like the I, I did like the take on on brainiac here we do also get this very strong insinuation that brainiac was the one responsible for krypton's destruction 
Now, does this get, I mean, and again, like I said, I haven't read the new Krypton story. Right, right. Does that get answered definitively, as you recall, or, or, or no? From, from what I remember, uh, the brainiac of it all isn't really addressed. Okay. There's, there's a new player on the, on the scene, and that is what is responsible for the destruction of Krypton. I don't think this story gets referenced in there. I could be wrong, but I, I don't think so. I will be covering new Krypton at the end of the year, yeah. so don't worry, folks. We'll get there. It's really funny because literally as you and I are recording this, I mean, not literally, I'm not doing two things at once, but uh, I am <laughs> I'm currently in the process of at last reading through the Bendis run on Superman for yeah. an upcoming episode. And of course that run deals with Rogel Czar who claims to have yeah, destroyed yeah, yeah. Krypton. And so I guess I've got, it's, it's funny how these things line up, how they sync up, but I've never been a fan of the notion that someone was actually responsible for the planet's destruction. I think the way it's played in Superman, the animated series, for example, where Brainiac could have helped avert the disaster, but didn't. I'm cool with that. I think that works fine. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, I I think there's something just more epic and mythological about the idea that it really is this natural tragedy that he is saved from by the actions of his parents, as opposed to, um, again, a specific entity actually destroying the planet. Yeah, and I'll go one step further. I like the version of of, of Krypton's destruction that is a cautionary tale for we humans on Earth, which is that you know the Kryptonians had you know used up all their natural resources and depleted the planet and and sort of poisoned and polluted it to the point where it couldn't survive, um, and it was. It was a, a, a destruction of their own making. And Jor-El was one of the only people as, as, uh, as part of the Science Council who was trying to, in vain, convince everybody that we need to stop. We need to roll this back. I mean, it is a perfect metaphor for the climate crisis we face right now, you know, where we have so many science scientists telling us, stop what you're doing, find alternate sources of energy, stop polluting the planet, you know, roll this back or we're doomed. Right. It won't, it won't necessarily be Earth that it sort of explodes in that sort of grand, dramatic, epic fashion that Krypton does. But, you know, what does the future for humanity if we continue? So I like the fact that here we have this uniquely Americanized mythology, right? The beginning of the superhero genre, right, which is our own American mythology that basically puts forth this cautionary tale so i that's the version i like so yeah when you take a, a villain and say no 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 he he did it I, i'm not a fan of that either. yes i agree i agree completely with that and i think the destruction of krypton works vastly better in that context it's, it was interesting rereading brainiac <clears throat> right after the Superman 78 miniseries that Dan and I discussed in the first half of this double feature. I know you have not had a chance to read it yet, so I, I won't, I won't spoil too much, but uh, a, a lot of, a lot of echoes actually was well, just jumping back to last sun for a second. Dan and I talked at the end of our discussion about what, who or what we would like to see in a, in a potential sequel to Superman 78, if it ever happens. And Dan's pick was uh, Metallo and Parasite, and mine was Bizarro, and we see all three in last night. Ah. So I, I feel like those were those were solid picks, and uh, it was interesting to see them utilized in a in a very similar sort of setting. Also, props whether it was Johns or Donner, but props for not using Bizarro speak in that last night story. Really, <laughs> well, really, say, really appreciated that. 
I was going to say, I'm surprised by your Bizarro pick because I know how you feel about certain depictions of Bizarro. Well, I qualified my pick in that discussion with Dan and I said, only if we don't use Bizarro <laughs> speak. So no, I yeah. thought, you know, just jumping back for a second, I thought that, you know, with Bizarro, with those three villains, you know, neither one individually is usually enough to really sustain a whole story. If you pair them up, that adds, you know, that adds to it. But I really like the way they were used here under the direction of Luther as part of this squad. So I thought that was cool. Uh, but yes. then with the Brainiac storyline, uh, the Brainiac, I, I mean, I suspect you at least know this much, that Brainiac is the central villain of Superman 78, and we do deal with... I didn't the, know that. Actually. I'm sorry that I just spoiled that. No, for no, you. no, that's fine. <laughs> I, it's, it doesn't really spoil anything. Uh, yeah, it's it's you know you'll you'll find out very quickly in the pages of the story. But so Brainiac is the villain, and we do deal with bottled cities. So there there are a lot of echoes there. So it's interesting to see this. Okay. And of course, Brainiac came out years earlier. Um, but uh, yeah, so it was interesting to see that. And I, I guess that brings us to the death of of Jonathan. Which let me toss it to you first. What especially now we've had years to to process this, and what's really kind of weird about all of this is it was just a few years afterwards that we got the new 52 right where continuity is rewritten and both jonathan and martha have died and they remain that way until the end of doomsday clock so this death of jonathan ended up and again i'm assuming emotionally it drives a fair bit of new krypton i i, I would imagine to some extent but again you don't have a lot of time in this in the context of Jonathan has just died. So it was just the way it worked out publishing wise. But how, how does it sit with you now? These years later. Um, I'm really mixed. I'm really conflicted about it. Uh, you and I have spoken and, and you have spoken about this at length on, on, I can't even count how many episodes <laughs> um, that you are, are more of a fan of Superman stories when Ma and Pa Kent are alive, that they are sort of moral sounding boards for, for Clark who, while, you know, confident as Superman, and even as, as he grew more confident as Clark in his professional life and romantic life, still had those moments where he's unsure of himself and needed needed the guidance and the support, not from Jorel, who can sometimes be sort of cold and distant, but from his human parents. And I've agreed with that assessment. I'm also a fan of, of Ma and Pa Kent being sort of an old kindly couple on the farm, watching the exploits of their son from afar, but every now and again, getting a visit from him or him and Lois. And, you know, we'll get a Christmas issue where he goes home for, you know, for the holiday or something like that. And, I, and I've always liked it. That said, the Superman movie from 78, which along with super friends was really my introduction to the character. Um, I've always loved the, I've loved what, what Donner did with the emotion of Jonathan Kent's death, because there's this very famous moment at, at Pa Kent's funeral where Clark turns to Martha and says, all these powers I have for all the things I can do. And I couldn't save him because at the end of the day, he didn't die in a catastrophe. He didn't die because of a villain's attack. He died of a heart attack. You know, something completely mundane that even Superman can't stop. Just can't stop it. And we get that version of Jonathan Kent's death here, where Superman is far, far away. 
fighting Brainiac. You know, he does not hear the calls for help because he's so embroiled in the in the the fight. And then once the fight is over and he hears the calls, he races faster than we've ever seen him move back to the farm, but he's too late. And there is there is a beauty to that. And of course, having Gary Frank draw is, I mean, adds only adds to it. And and John's to his credit also is not afraid to go silent in his comics for a while when it's called for. And he does go silent here. There's a lot of tumult and a lot of noise in the battle and calls for help. And then it just goes silent. So I was just as affected by this version of Jonathan Kent's death as I was all those years back in the movie. And at the same time, I recognize that, man, I don't like it when Jonathan Kent is dead. So like the moment plays out well, but the implications of the moment I don't love. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. And that's sort of where I landed. And like you said, I've talked about this a lot and you did a great job of encapsulating what, a, <laughs> what, I've, what I've you know hit on before. So I don't need to rehash it. But yeah, I feel like an effective Jonathan Kensington, I don't want to say it, it's easy because in lesser hands, it would not have necessarily played well. But at the same time, it's it's such an emotional moment that it, I, I don't know how to put this, but it, it's like you, you would really have to drop the ball to lose the effect, the impact of the moment of Jonathan passing. So then it becomes, it's like, okay, we can get the moment, but what comes after? What is the purpose of this? And to your point, it's like, I, I can appreciate the purpose of it in Superman the movie, in Smallville when it's, although Smallville then spent a lot of years kind of uh, treading water right after that, but that's a separate <laughs> conversation. But you know, this idea of it signaling the end of, of his adolescence and he's going to take the next step, you know, that serves a major purpose in his development. So I'm more okay with that. Here, he's already fully grown and fully realized in his in his role as the Earth's protector. It's something new for him to deal with emotionally. So, I, you know, I, I can get that. But I, I do just sort of wonder, you know, you get this moment, but do you lose more than you're gaining? Now, arguing against myself, and this was something that I don't think I really, I think I was just kind of mad the first time I read this years ago, but I was able to kind of sit with it a little bit more now. I do appreciate the the symmetry of losing this major, major piece of his earthly life and family at the exact moment that Candor is restored Right, so this piece of his Kryptonian heritage re-enters his life at the same time as Earthly Father passes. I can, I, I can appreciate that, and I think that's, you know, that's uh, something that hopefully gets mined in the new Krypton storyline. But at least in that moment, it it sort that worked for me, and I, I got that. But yeah, overall, was I a fan of this decision? No. Was the moment of him finding Jonathan? moving and the funeral scene and, and him sitting in the barn and, or in his bedroom and thinking about one of his last interactions with Jonathan, of course, of course that tugs at the heartstrings, but it's always going to. So like I said, I think it's like, what, what are we getting beyond that? And that's where I still don't know that this was really worth it in the end. Yeah. It's funny. I'm listening to you talk about this and, and the, the flip of losing part of his, his earthly family, but gaining some Kryptonian family. Um, and I wonder if the death would have played differently, read better, if the last son of Krypton and Brainiac arcs had been reversed. If Brainiac had come first, if Clark then loses his father 
but then in the aftermath of that has to become a father himself. And seeing that kind of reversal maybe might have given more weight to Jonathan's death. And now Jonathan lives on in the lessons he taught Clark about how to be a father and then Clark using those lessons with Chris. And if Chris had been given a little bit more time rather than just that one arc, almost like they've done now with John Ken, you know, would that have worked as a better story? I think you're onto something big time. I think that's a great, I think that's a great observation. I think thematically that would have worked better. I, I, yeah, right on, man. I, yeah, I think that would have worked a lot better. So we have just passed the hour mark, which means that our double feature here is, is into uh, epic, uh, epic territory. So I know, I know we both did reread secret origin, but I have, there's another opportunity down the line on the podcast for us to talk about it. So let's, if, if it's all right with you, let's, let's save it for, for that. Uh, but I'm glad that we were able to unpack the last son and Brainiac stories to the extent we did. I, I really did. Like I said, I, I enjoy them, especially last son and more so than I had before. And I, I could, I could come to terms with them uh, again, especially in the context of this Donnerverse. So, uh, so thank you so much for taking part in this. My pleasure. You know, I'm on board. Anytime you ask me, this is such a blast. Uh, I can't wait to do it again. Right on. Well, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Dan, from the first half of our double feature. Thank you to the audience. Make sure that you come back next week for part three of the Donnerverse. I will be joined by Zach Moore, host of the Always Hold On to Smallville podcast, and we will be talking about the Donner cut of Superman 2. You don't want to miss it. Until then, remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. One action I hope you will take is to consider joining my Patreon community. My new spinoff podcast, Digging for Justice, a DC movie fan journey, is coming soon exclusively on my Patreon, starting at the $1 level. Many more rewards are available too, including a robust catalog of bonus podcasts. Thank you to all patrons for enabling me to produce this show.